Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Playing Crazy Down Under is proudly sponsored by Oz Runways, Australia's most complete and cost-effective electronic flight bag package for your iPhone and iPad. For your free one-month trial, visit ozrunways.com today. And by Jetride Australia. Be a top gun for the day. Visit jetride.com.au slash pcdu for the fastest ride in the country. Oh yeah. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 85 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Vischer, and joining me as always, I think what's left of him anyway, from his sickbed, Grant McCarran. Grant, are you still with us? Uh, yeah, mostly, mate. I'm pretty much here. Uh, seems like I'm just getting over a wee bout of bronchitis. A wee bout of bronchitis. You know, as soon as I found out that the uh, the inventor of Red Bull had died, you just went into some sort of relapse. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's always those cans of mother. It's not the full-on thing, but it could develop that far if I don't take care. And given I'm going to be flying Ben Air in a week or so, the doctor said, well, I better get up on the antibiotics so I'm as immune as I can be for whatever ills will befall me from flying Le Ben Air. Well, there we go. And uh, I wonder what Ben Air is. Let's find out about that as we welcome back to the show for the first time in a long time, Ben Ippolito, ATC Ben. How are you, Ben? I'm good. I'm a lot better than Grant by the sounds of it. You are, mate. And that new <laughs> microphone is sounding sensational. I've got a, uh, a C1 News, the same as uh, Mr. McCarran over there, so it makes him sound good, so it must work well. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. Miracles are possible. <laughs> now, how's, how's the world of air traffic control been since last we had you on the show? You been busy? <laughs> That's been, a rhetorical question, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> been been very busy, but uh, keeping them separated and doing our jobs. So Got to keep them separated. That's right, and we haven't left anyone up there yet. That's good, and uh, no, no rivet showers as we uh, we discussed way back in episode 17 or whenever it was. Yeah, that's right. No, I haven't had any of them. Well, we might talk a little bit in a minute about Ben Air and uh, why all of a sudden we have Ben Air. And, uh, we also put out at the start of this episode a request via Twitter for some questions for ATC Ben. You know, if you have any questions about air traffic control, and uh, we've had a few come in, so we'll do that uh, towards the end of the show. But uh, Ben, Ben Air, well, of course we have that now, and the reason we have that is your current again. Yes, I finally went and got my license back. Thank God for that. So um, don't ever become uncurrent when you get your pilot's license. It just makes you feel so inadequate when you start flying again. However, because you have this vague recollection of how easy everything used to be in the back of your head and you're flying along going, how come this isn't working? Why can't I make this work? I I, I tend to find these things and I like to do, you know, insignificant things like land. (laughs) (laughs) But my landings were actually still pretty good. Mind you, we have a grass runway at a little bit else, so it tends to cushion the fall. Yeah, but it's a lumpy grass runway. It's not too lumpy. You've got Uh, boxy wheels on your aeroplane. No, we came in in the Yak uh, a while back on the right-hand runway heading to the north, and uh, yeah, we came in, touched down, greasing along, and boing, we're back in the air. Up oh, there's another bump, and back down, and yeah, we did actually have positive return to earth for a bit before we found ourselves in the air again. But uh, the the left-hand runway seems a little smoother. I've I've found in Lilydale, mind you, that was before a lot of the rain, so it could have all bogged and smoothed out. Well, I, I hope so. Yeah, that's the uh, the one downside I, I've noticed since my uh, return to flying is that. Uh, Operating from a grass runway since I've moved over from Essendon to uh, Lillardale now. Every time it rains, you've got to worry about how much runway is actually left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and can you actually get to your aircraft or get it out of the hangar without bogging it in the grass in front of it, right? 
Yeah, there's always that too. But uh, <laughs> in my, my first takeoff in uh, two and a half years, I uh, arrived at the airport and we did our little briefing about what we were going to go and do. And it was just after the first big rain that they had last year at the very start of summer there. And I said, oh, how much runway have we got left? Oh, about 400 metres. <laughs> I went, oh. 200 foot. <laughs> oh, dear. I went, right. So... No challenge. <laughs> short field takeoff. Yeah. Welcome short, back, Ben. Short, short, soft field takeoff, yeah, on a wet grass runway. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> no challenge at all. So, hey, here's the big question then. Uh, you, you're talking about this being last year. Just how many hours and how much elapsed time did it take you to get current again? It did take me a little while, but that said, I probably could have done it a bit sooner had I actually have allotted it into a few days in a row. But getting instructors is a little bit of a, a challenge or getting grade two instructors is a little bit of a challenge to try and get the days to line up and things like that. And of course, anytime you're trying to actually get your skills current again, having breaks between the flights doesn't help either. So, so you had to take a bit of time, time between. There's a bit of time for that. Back. And okay. of course, now that I'm a little bit older and wiser, I thought, well, I'll do enough dual flights that I'm actually happy to go by myself again, regardless of, you know, everyone thinks, well, you know, Look, you, you're fine. You won't you know, bend the aeroplane. That's that difference between legal and competent, right? Correct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I guess, Ben, for uh, people that are perhaps new to the show, uh, you should uh, tell us uh, which ratings you held before you became non-current and uh, which ratings you got back. Before I went to the dark side, as everyone would like to call it, uh, I was a commercial aeroplane pilot and uh, had just got my multi-engine command instrument rating and uh, I've also got... Uh, it used to be called Constant Speed Propeller. It's called something else now because they renamed Com- it. Uh, complex Aircraft Endorsements or something? It's called Manual Propeller Pitch Control now. Oh, jeez. Because the um, Constant Speed Prop and Asiris and all the like uh, is automatic. Yeah. Uh, so- and retractable gear and I had a couple of different multi-type ratings and, and all that so- sort of thing. So, so it's, the, it's the extra lever endorsement. Correct. Yeah, the extra lever endorsement. I had one of them. Um, yeah. also had tailwheel rating, which I'm, I'm looking at getting current in that again because tailwheel cool. airplanes are more fun. So I had all of that, and had I not got my uh, air traffic control job, I would have been looking at upgrading to the uh, company that I was flying for, getting an endorsement on their chieftain and flying charter. So I was pretty much at the the bottom rung of the commercial ladder when I jumped into air traffic control, and now I've got back to the point that I am current for day VFR single engine work at the moment. And, of course, this being Australia and under the Australian uh, system, of course, you'll need a rating to fly on a Wednesday, a separate one to fly on a Thursday, one to fly on a Friday afternoon, <laughs> and uh, so it goes. It's it's the way it's going at the moment. I did uh, take advantage of the private IFR rating when I got my multi-engine command instrument rating, so my intention is to get that back next, so at least I can fly in and out of clouds. Well, I tell you what, I think we're going to have to come back to that uh, discussion about the private IFA rating uh, and, and cover it in a bit more detail in a later episode. I really think that's something that we uh, we certainly need to do. But uh, let's move on now and let's talk air shows. Now, back at the start of March, we headed off to the Thai Air Show. Now, they have this air show every second year and they, they sort of slot it in there between uh, Avalon's on alternate years, which is, uh, you know, quite handy because it, as it turns out, it's right at the same time of year as uh, Avalon would be. Uh, we headed off there under gloomy skies. It didn't uh, look particularly uh, promising weather when we set out from home, but uh, Grant and myself, along with uh, Steve Pam and uh, ATC Ben as our camera guys, Alan Van Padge, our mobile studio operator, and my son Chris uh, tagging along as well, we all headed down there to cover the air show. We got a heap of photos down there and a heap of interviews. Uh, Grant, uh, there was some great flying going on that day. That's right, mate. It was absolutely awesome. Uh, beautiful day down there. A little bit windy at times, a bit overcast at times, but you know, lifted 
came through and, uh, well, aside from the sunburn, it was a really great time. Yeah, we'll talk about sunburn a bit later on and just how much of it I suffered. And, you know, a month later, boy, I'm still suffering from it. Boy, what a lesson learned there. But uh, we, we spoke to a lot of people, including Guy Burke, Jim and Jenny Wickham, Mark Pracy, Scott Tavern of the Southern Knights, Adrian Burge. We even did a Timbo's Tarmac, reminiscent of our uh, Avalon coverage. So uh, it was a very busy day down there. And now, uh, of course, uh, the uh, Tyab Airfield is managed there by the Peninsula Aero Club. They have a fantastic club down there and they have some great aircraft as well as a, a great flying training program that you'll hear about uh, during our first interview. Uh, we went down there the day before. Grant uh, spoke to Peter Bernardi and John Brett from the Peninsula Aero Club about uh, what they do at the club and uh, how the air show came together. Here at Tyab with Peter Bernardi and John Brett and we're going to have a quick chat on the day before the air show about what to expect from the show and where it's all come from. Peter, I believe you're the president of the Aero Club and the director of the air show. Yes, I was the person that didn't step back quickly enough. No, <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be a great show this year. It's uh, it's our 50th anniversary. We've been here since 1962, and we've been holding our air shows uh, since 1967. And uh, primarily, the air show is uh, uh, using most of the members' aircraft that are here. We have visiting uh, pilots and their aircraft as well, but we uh, have sufficient numbers here to do our own show. And it's it's one that's a local community effort. The uh, returns from the air show proceeds go to the local CFA, the Literacy Village, Men's Shed, goes into the football, cricket club, netball club, Boy Scouts, Girl Guides. So all the proceeds go back into the community and uh, and it's a community effort actually. The, the help that we get from uh, the people like the CFA and that is just fantastic. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to do it. It's just too much Yep. Too much work. Yep. Uh, this has been building for quite some time, a number of years that you've been doing the show, and and so you've been learning a lot from each one, so well, each one keeps getting better. Each Well, they well they do keep get, getting better, but so does the paperwork, and the bureaucracy is uh, it also gets better. But uh, we, we, we've had some help on that, and, and we'll, we'll do pretty well this year. We yep. have. We've had some good um, uh, reporting from uh, 3RW and uh, 3RW and... Uh, and things are looking pretty good. Apart from the little bit of drizzle today, yep. which we're told tomorrow will stop at 5am sharp, and for the rest of the day will be fine and mild with light light southerly winds. That does appear to be what's happening according to all the, <laughs> according to all the um, reports that I've been looking at, all the predictions and the models I've got access to. They're all showing that it will be a reasonably nice day. I think it's going to be a great day, actually, yep. yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Um, how have you found the changing shape of putting on the air show here at Tyab? Old rules and regulations uh, that, that come into place uh, that council require, state government require, um, it's, a, it's a lot more effort than it used to be, it, and, but it's also made us a lot more professional than probably than we used to be. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot we're learning with the uh, police, the Vic Ambulance uh, and the council in how things have to be structured these days. We've got to live with it, so we've got to do it. Yeah, and the insurers, I imagine, have got their own requirements. Well, the insurers are not too bad. We've always had good relationship with insurance people, and uh, that that's not the problem. It's just the way that you've got to handle crowds these days and uh, make sure everyone's safe and uh, and and just put on a good show for them. That's, yep. that's, that's the main thing. Now, there's two years between tie-up air shows. Uh, I imagine it takes all two years to get ready for the next one? Just about the two years. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, got, couldn't do it every year. No. Mm. So you got a couple of weeks to relax and recover. Yeah, about two weeks. <laughs> yes. and, and we're already thinking of themes for the next air show. I can tell you that now. So, I would imagine. Yeah. 
what kind of planning have you have you been going through for this one? What, what are the steps that, uh, how, how do you go through those two years leading up? What we do is we put a notice up on the board. Does anybody want to be on an air show committee? Which usually uh, means that most of the people run and hide so you don't see them for a while. But uh, I'm only kidding there. So we form an air show committee which has some of its base on the uh, normal working committee of the day and we start having uh, meetings once a month and then as it gets towards the latter part we're having uh, meetings once every week and that includes uh, with the police, fire brigade, ambulance, uh, the council, uh, there's quite a few other meetings that we've had to do with the council this year, we have to organise parking Uh, we don't have a great deal of room here for people's cars, so they have to be. Uh, we have to use the local football grounds, just so we have to make sure we're not clashing with anything that uses that. So there's a, an incredible amount of um, planning that has to go into it, and the members of the airshow committee this year, and they're all all worked very very hard, mm-hmm. and uh, now it's one more sleep. Yeah, indeed. Mm. And uh, how how much of the planning and effort that went into the previous year's effort um, air show can you carry over to the next one? We have a working working paper, yeah. so to speak, and uh, we refer back to them. And then we have to submit that working plan to council to to get the uh, permits to hold an air show. So anything that needs to be upgraded, such as uh, different safety pr- proceeds. Um, Ambulance Victoria require uh, have required several different things this year. Uh, it all has to be updated. So the the operation operational manual of how we run our air show uh, first off has to be upgraded uh, and find out any new rules and regulations and incorporate them. And then you go along with that. But it, it is uh, built up from previous years. So we do have a sort of bible that we can sort of refer back to the basis. Okay. And what's special about this year's air show? What's um, what's unique about it compared to other ones? From it's a- our 50th anniversary. That's a very good reason to yep. be different. 1962, uh, the first aircraft landed on the uh, ground here. It was then uh, called the Swamp, this piece of land. Nobody wanted it. And uh, due to uh, Bill Vell, Doug Thompson and uh, Bruce Davis and a few other people, they, uh, they got the land cleared, formed a runway. Initially it was an east-west runway. We still have that runway, but it's not the common one we use these days. We've got a north-south. And, uh, and the first plane officially landed in uh, 1962. Okay. And so that's, this year is also the 50th anniversary of um, Coldstream. Of Coldstream, Warrnambool and uh, Mid-Murray Valley Flying School as well. Oh, so we're all having 50th anniversary. And we're all trying to think, I wonder what was going on in 1962. Yeah. Everybody started forming these... Uh, yeah, but yeah, but several oh, uh, several fiftieth anniversaries. Yeah, it is mm. interesting that mm. it must have been a few explorers and suddenly <laughs> decided to start flying around. Yeah. I'm <laughs> sure there wasn't buckets of money around. <laughs> there must have been some other reason, yeah. but it escapes us at the moment. Okay, so the majority of, of uh, the acts here tomorrow will be local. Will be local. We've got a few of our friends from Point Cook, a few from uh, Tamora. Uh, we've got a couple of interstate uh, pilots in uh, their planes. We've got a lot of bad weather in New South Wales uh, that might restrict some aircraft getting down. They certainly should have been here by now. But if it's uh, clears uh, tomorrow, we expect um, some early arrivals. There's a couple of hours they can sneak in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the air show doesn't start till 12. Yep. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll be very accommodating. If they can get through the weather, they're welcome. <laughs> Indeed. Mm.
Now, um, a little bit about yourself. Uh, now, you're president here and you're an aviator yourself. Yep. Um, how long have you been flying for? Uh, I've been flying since 1979. I was a late starter in, in 79. Um, I w- was not in a position as a young person to be able to afford to fly, but later on, um, running my own business, I was able to do so. Okay. It's, um, I was a uh, fence sitter at Essendon Airport. Uh, we lived in Maidstone, so I used to push my Malvern Star up uh, to Essendon from there and sit on the fence and watch all the planes from TAA and, and from ANA mm-hmm. uh, and watch them fly. But I never dreamt that I'd ever, ever be able to learn to fly. Yeah, and what kind of aircraft have you been flying? Well, I own a uh, 1950 de Havilland Chipmunk and until recently a 1941 uh, Ryan PT-22, which mm. is a five-cylinder open cockpit plane, yeah. and I have a half share in a Yak-52. Good choice. I love the Yak-52. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. a great plane. Mm. I sometimes go up with Andrew Temby and his one. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah. Okay, same Very same machine. Yeah. yeah, so you've got the TW? Or? No, no, I've got the, all my other aeroplanes are tail wheel because I love tail wheel aeroplanes, but uh, the my Yak is a, is a nose wheel, so okay. I had to learn to fly a nose wheel aircraft. There you go, that's yeah. a change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> great change, yeah. Yeah. It's usually the reverse. <laughs> indeed, yeah. indeed. No, well, you've followed, the, uh, followed man's progression as I, opposed to I the I did eagle. indeed, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the Ryans are really nice. They, uh... Yeah, well, I've just, just sold the Ryan to uh, young Scotty Tappener. My wife and I bought that in 1984, and uh, one of my first passengers was Scott Tappener. He was only eight years old at the time. And uh, now he's an airline pilot with uh, Tiger Air- Airlines. And um, he and his uh, wife uh, used the Ryan for their wedding uh, photos a few years back. And, um, and he's just recently um, purchased it off me. I've retired, so I've had to uh, trim the fleet down a bit, so, f- so, so to speak. And um, young Scott, and, uh, and when I say young Scott, he's not that young these days but he he and uh, Emma have now purchased that and uh, and are great custodians you only look after these things mm-hmm. yes. for a while and then you pass them on to someone else you think is going to look after them yeah yeah you're, you're caring for them and keeping them alive that's correct yeah yep. yeah and Scotty's polished it and 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 redone some of the lettering on it, it looks really great cool that's nice yeah. Well, thanks, Peter. Yep. Um, I'm going to just pass the uh, microphone over this way to John, who's been sitting quietly p- contemplating. John Brett, uh, what's your role with the Aero Club and with the Air Show? My role is media officer, and I produce the accreditation. I, I look at the uh, people who require accreditation and then provide them with the various passes that they need to on the, for the day. And I started, in fact, I started uh, here... In 19, sorry, I got my license in uh, 1961 and then gave it away and then I really got back into it about three years ago um, after a bit of an absence and that came about by uh, meeting up with Judy Pay. In fact, I went into Peter's news agency and I said, what can I do to assist in the air show? And he said, well, what are you good at? And I said, well, how about I do a DVD? And he said, sounds like a good idea. So I'm a cinematographer as well. He said, but you need to go up and see Judy Pay. So I went up and saw Judy and she said it's already been handled out of New Zealand, so the guys from New Zealand are coming over to do it. However, uh, you're ABC accredited, are you? I said, yes. So I said, okay. She said, you can take on the media role. So and that's what I've done. And I generate and produce and actually manually produce all the passes, accreditations, and that's for every pass that, for people to come onto the air show. You've been doing what? What kind of flying have you been doing lately? Right, I'm I'm a, a, a staunch advocate of RAA flying. So the the club have just purchased a Skycatcher, 
Cessna 162. We bought two of them. One's gone into GA, and we have a brand new one in RAA that, that's come out. And uh, the GA one that came in, I was the first person to fly that, actually. I, uh, Peter was going to raffle the, the first flight, but uh, it, so, it sort of got here, and I, they were being built over in Judy Pay's hangar, and I was down there every day watching that happen. And when it came out, I sweet talk. Okay, okay, let me go. So they they let me take one, uh, the GA one for, for a flight. So I got number one in that. Yeah. So I love RAA. I think it's a, it's great. We've got a fleet of gazelles here as well, and we've got a very strong student program, especially in the schools, yeah. uh, and that gives the kids a, a good kick off. Uh, some of them just uh, don't do any more, but there are a few guys that have, and girls that have gone on and they're really pushing through and going up to uh, instructor status. In fact, the, the club has one of the, the, the last Ellie here. She is a, an instructor and she came through the school system. Excellent. And, uh, yeah, we love them. It's, it's great to get the school kids in as well and RA aircraft are a good starter. Um, are you finding that some people are coming in and learning an RA and then branching up to GA or...? That's what we try to do, um, and uh, and it's working fine. We've got a couple already in uh, in the airlines, uh, the smaller airlines in West Australia, and as uh, John said, Ali is uh, an instructor. He come through the Woodley School, and we've um, it, it's proving to be very successful because the transition from RAA then into GA it means that all the hours that they've flown in RAA get credited for a normal licence. And that's the brilliant part. And that's the brilliant part. And it doesn't take them any amount of time, hardly, to uh, go st- straight into a GA aircraft, which is usually a little bit heavier. And uh, and, and they do it very quickly. Yeah. And, and it's a much quicker way to learn than starting off in GA. Yes. And also, it's yeah, because it's quicker, it's cheaper per hour um, in general. In general, yeah. But yeah. it's also newer equipment. Um, you're getting to handle an qu- aircraft that... Uh, Lighter wing loading, different performance, and so you get better, better at flying. It, I it's a, it's a much better base. I think yeah. it's a, it's a great base to start off with. Yeah, because you and see some GA guys come the other way. Oh, and, and they have a hard time handling it. Yeah, because yeah. they're not used to that light wing loading. That's right. Yeah, yeah. they yeah. have a hard time handling it. So uh, I think this is a better way. Well, I think it matches matches the way things have gone. And yeah. One of the things that Peter said, you said that we, we have the off year, so every year. And the, the reason why we have that off year is we, we don't want to compete with Avalon. So we say we know that we'd, with, we'd with have crowds here that Avalon wouldn't get. See, so we, we, we give them a good fair show so that they can put on their show yeah. and we can we can keep ours. See, that's, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's a spin we put around. <laughs> Excellent. Good spin. We just hope that the uh, public tomorrow at our air show have a really, really good time, that the, the weather's kind to us and that everyone has a, a great time. That's what we're looking forward to. We yep. sure are. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Paul Bennett, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. We're standing here in front of your uh, pit special on the tarmac. How's it all going? Yeah, it's going well down here at the Tyab Air Show today. Um, looking forward to a display there shortly and, uh, yeah, it'll be good. Looking forward to it. Cool. Yeah, we've got a lot of background noise from the PA and from the other aircraft, but uh, see what we can get. Now, Paul, how long have you been flying for? Uh, I've been flying for 15 years. I uh, had an interesting start to my flying career. My father has always been a pilot and... Um, I knew I always wanted to fly, so when I was younger I flew model aeroplanes for a long time. Um, I guess mainly because I couldn't afford full size. And then um, when I was 19 and 20, actually when I was 20, I went for a ride with a friend of mine who flew model aeroplanes, but just went solo in a pit special S2A, a bit bigger than this one, but with two seats. 
and uh, that got me hooked. That was on a Sunday afternoon, and then Monday morning I was at Royal Newcastle Aero Club trying to get my pilot's license. Excellent. So, uh, and that hasn't stopped since. So, so then I uh, worked away at getting my GFPT, and I actually then, uh, as soon as I'd done my GFPT, I didn't finish my private license straight away. I went to uh, Phil Unicum at Action Aerobatics, also based at Royal Newcastle Aero Club, and. Um, uh, I started doing emergency manoeuvre training and flying the pit special S2A, which was, um, yeah, it was really good. So I sort of didn't stop then. I just kept doing it a couple of times a week. And uh, finally I had a job that paid enough money to afford flying. And it wasn't too long after that. Then I uh, Phil got me up to speed. I soloed the S2A. And then I actually competed in my first competition at Parks in the graduate class in Phil's S2A, which I actually won. And then uh, after that, so I, I was actually at a stage where I could compete in aerobatic competition. However, I didn't have a PPL to fly to and from the at the event. So That's awesome. I had to go there in the front of the S2A. And, and, uh, but then when we got there, I could still fly the event. So I knew as soon as I started, I knew that I knew my career. I wanted to do as much aerobatic flying as I could. So eventually you finished off your, P, your full private uh, Yeah, then it, straight after that I finished my PPL and, yeah. and, uh, and away we went. That made life a lot easier. Oh, yeah. Then, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm finding that really fascinating that you're, you're able to solo fly an S2A but you still hadn't got your full PPL yet. Well, yeah, awesome. I was in a hurry to do yeah. aerobatics, so yeah. for me it was all about priorities. I really wanted to do aerobatics and that's what I did. So You were, you were hooked on G. I was hooked on G and uh, it's just exciting, you know, it's... You know, I love, you know, motorbikes and car racing and all that type of thing, but it's, it's not really three-dimensional, it's or four-dimensional, you know. The, the aerobatics is, is an amazing thing that I haven't found anything even similar to it. So, yeah, I, I got my... finished off my PPL, and then I, I moved on to... Phil at the time owned a Pit Special S1S, similar to this one, which I later bought from him. I competed in that for a few years. Um, competed in sportsman and intermediate. And then I moved to advanced, and... Uh, I won several competitions on the way through, and then um, I started doing air shows in in 05 when I was flying at the advanced level, and uh, I gradually got um, my low level waiver. So when I first competed, I had 1500, and then I had that for several years because that's all I needed for the grades I was flying. And then when I went to intermediate, I came to a thousand, and before I went to advanced, I came down to 500. And then after a few years of that, I went to 300. And then after that, I went to ground level. And um, you know, it's a it's a big process to work up the skill level and and to understand the dangers of it. And uh, it's it's been a great great run so far. I've really enjoyed it. And then you know, I guess the highlights were in 2008. I won advanced at the nationals at Parks. 2009, I was the Australian Unlimited champion, winning the Phillips Cup, which at that time was um, was a, a really good challenge for me because I was always looked at as the underdog flying a biplane. Yeah. Everyone else had half million dollar monoplanes. Yeah, they would have. And I was uh, running a, a trusty four cylinder biplane, but I knew it well and and I flew it well and um, yeah, it was comfortable. Yeah, it was great. But since then, I've continued doing some competitions. I haven't I haven't competed in all competitions since then, just because of, I've been very busy with air shows. And, uh, but wherever I can do competitions, I will. I actually competed last weekend at the Victorian State Championships at Tokemore. It was a great time. Some great guys out there, and I won um, the Unlimited class. And a few months before that, I won uh, the Queensland State Championship. So wherever possible, I'll certainly compete. Yep. 
but um, I'm very busy with air shows and I also, this is a bit unusual for me, this air show at Tyab, I'm only flying the pit special, whereas normally quite often uh, I'll do the solo in the pit special. Formation aerobatics with the Sky Aces with two or three pit specials with either myself, Phil Unicum and Glenn Collins or Glenn Graham or myself and Phil Unicum and... Um, and quite often I also fly the warbirds, either yeah. the Wirraway or Grumman Avenger, or both. Well, what's the, what's that land? The Grumman Avenger is sort of like a house. It's huge. Yeah, it's a big, uh, the biggest single-engine fighter-bomber that was ever built, really. So, uh, yeah, it's quite different, you know. You get out of a pit special like this, a tiny little 360-kilo aeroplane into a into a bomber that weighs six tonne, and you've got going from 250 horsepower to... 1950 horsepower. The engine must weigh four, as much as this aircraft. Yeah, that's right. You're going from four cylinders here to 14 cylinders in a Grumman Avenger. Um, that's amazing. But, you know, you, you get used to those things. I've done a lot of flying now, and, and uh, you know, you can adapt from aeroplane to aeroplane quite quickly. Yep. And it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. The Wirraway's a great aeroplane. I love the Wirraway for, for gentlemen's aerobatics. That's what just took off before, was a yeah. couple of them. Yep. Yeah. It's so, distinctive. So yeah, I pretty much I'll, I'll fly anything. I still, even though I, I perform in the biplane at air shows, I still love flying monoplanes. I fly Giles 202 regularly and uh, Edge 540. Really, whatever whatever's available, I just love to fly it. So yeah. it's been a great career so far, and I'm, I'm looking forward to keeping it going. Excellent. And you run the Max G Aerobatics. Yeah, Max G Aerobatics and Paul Bennett Air Shows is my air show business. We're uh, always travelling around the country doing various air shows, and. Uh, yeah, this, it's good to be down at a Melbourne air show. Actually, I haven't done a hell of a lot of air shows in Melbourne. I've been very busy in all the other states, but uh, yeah, it's really good of Judy to give me an opportunity to come to Tyab, and uh, I greatly appreciate it. Excellent. Thank you very much for coming on the show. No worries. Cheers, Thanks, mate. Jim and Jenny, welcome. Welcome to Back to Playing Crazy Down Under. How are you going? I'm pretty good, thanks. Good day today, except we've had a bit of rain, but people still t- seem to be turning out, so that's good. That's good. How are you doing? I'm good. Got the toy box outside today, so yeah, yeah a bit of organising first up, but <laughs> it's, all, it's all in its place, so everyone can sort of have a good look at all the planes. Excellent. And uh, what have you guys been up to since last we had you on the show? Oh, it would have been a year or so ago at one of the pageants. Oh, we finished the Stuart Mustang now. I've been flying that. That wasn't finished then. And we've yep. um, just been keeping them all flying. And we've you know, done a few air shows and just basically keeping the place going, you know. It okay. takes a bit of work to keep all these planes in the air. <laughs> it does, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? You've got to yeah. do that day job to keep them going. Yeah. Right? The, yeah, um, right. Now, these these are three-quarter scale P-51s? Yeah. Okay, yeah. and they've got a V8 engine in them, haven't they? Yeah, the two of them have got small block Chev V8s, um, just standard Corvette engines, and the new Stuart one's got a big block, got a 502 Chev in it. It did sound a lot like a, a rev-head hoon car when you were doing it at Point Cook yesterday, last week. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, yeah, it's pretty noisy, yeah. You'll be hearing it a bit later on. I think it's on about 2 o'clock, 2.30 or something, okay. I think I'll be flying it. And you're also flying the Yak-9? Yak-9, yeah, and, yeah. and the helicopter display, yeah. Okay. And uh, then you've got the two Yak-52s, and uh, whose is the red car in the... Oh, uh, Jenny's. <laughs> <laughs> it's got her name on it, JJ, so it's Jenny's. <laughs> Looking forward to taking it for a spin. Oh, she drives it all the time. She races at I warm it up. There's, a, there's an agreement in our hangar. I warm it up. This is what the book recommends, warming it up. Jim flogs it and I cool her down. <laughs> and I like that Excellent. agreement. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Oh, it's been a good fun, yeah. Okay. And uh, you've been doing some flying in the Robbo lately? Or? Yeah, I've been... Um, we've got a new Robinson. We traded uh, 
Yankee Lima Mike in last April. So Victor Lima Mike, which is pretty good to get just one letter change yeah. in the rego for Jim because he's got so many to remember. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Victor Lima Mike is our new machine. She's gold. Okay. And um, you'll see her flying in a three-ship Robinson formation today. So okay. we've got the Robinsons uh, represented quite nicely here at Tyab. What kind of things are you going to be doing with the Robos today? Oh, just a handling display where I sort of fly backwards and sideways and 360s. And, <laughs> That's and sort of like, like me that. trying to fly normally <laughs> all over the place like that. Yeah, no, they're very manoeuvrable, the rubber. And yeah. they're, um, as, long as, across, as long as the wind's not too strong, the sort of tail doesn't want to go yeah. around too much. But um, okay. we're predicting pretty strong crosswinds even for the plane, so I don't know what's going to happen today. We'll see how we go. Okay, and uh, for the Yak-9, is it, are you going to have enough uh, sky to be able to do some errors? Oh, yeah, I won't be doing too much because... Um, no, it's a bit sensitive around here and yeah. everything's a bit sensitive, so I won't be... I'll be just doing my normal display. But, um, no, there's the Mustang and the Kitty Hawk going up and um, they'll be probably doing a few more arrows than I do, but just looks pretty and, and makes good noise, so it, yeah, that's all you need to do. People don't, people don't know what you do, really. <laughs> OK. Yeah. And uh, so what's the future holding for you? Uh, you've got... Well, we're just... Now. Yeah, no, well, we're just um, consolidating now. We've had a, you know, a change of life. The global financing is accepted affected everybody and we've got a nice collection we just keep them going and so we're just pretty happy um, keeping as we go I'm not going to build any more aeroplanes or anything so no we're just happy going keeping everything right yep excellent so no no new surprise toys coming out soon no I don't think so I've sort of gone back into the model helicopters and radar control stuff a bit and that's That's right yeah looked out at Turidan last year you were saying about that and quite quite interested in that uh, video helicopter that was impressive yeah I got it on my phone yeah that's some of these Whiz kids for their electronics is incredible what they can do. I'm not very electronical. <laughs> it's no. pretty scary, isn't it? Yeah, oh, it's just amazing how that thing flew. Yeah. yeah. So you're getting into the remote control as well? Yeah, she, yes, she yes. She flies a radar yes. control helicopter. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I, I have an old uh, gas nitro powered one and I, oh, I haven't yeah. got past the training legs yet. Yeah, <laughs> well, Jenny's just dropped her training wheels. She's got a Raptor 50 of nitro and she's um, nice. rolling around. Yeah, no, she's having a wonderful time. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> now we're off to um, Parafield at the end yep. of this month. Um, it's a nice air show. We haven't done that one before, so the Yak 9's going over to that. Cool. And later in the year, I think we're doing Jamestown, which is another good show nice one. in October, so that should be a bit of fun. So how are you getting over there if the Yak 9's? Is the I'm, Yak go- nine I'm going in the Yak 9 oh, to Parafield. Shit. I've done my Bund- Bundaberg endorsement. I did nine hours last August. Oh, and, so, so um, she, went, oh, yes. she went to Point Cook once, but yes. then she actually got in and went to Bundaberg with us, so that was a good effort. She- and I can tell you that if that was the hottest seat I've ever been in. So that's in the back of the Yak-9? Yes, because my little small seat's actually sitting on the radiator. Oh, ow. (laughs) So it was toasty. Yeah, they think these warbirds are good to go in, but they're you're better off looking from the outside because they're just a yes. hot, Certainly noisy aeroplane. I'll bet. So yeah. It's an hour and a half to Parafield yep. in the Yak-9, so... You think you can manage that? Yep. <laughs> OK. Well, thanks very much for coming back on uh, Playing no, Crazy good. Down Under, and yeah, it's good pleasure. to see you both here. Yeah, yeah same to you. Yeah. Thank you. Go and make a bit of noise. That's the one. Thank you. <laughs> OK, thank you. Scott Tabiner, welcome to uh, Playing Crazy Down Under. No worries, thanks very much. Cool. Now, uh, we're standing here in front of your uh, beautiful Ryan. How long have you had it? I bought this aeroplane about uh, six months ago. They used to be based here at Tyobo owned by Peter Bernardi and Bob Atwater, and I was lucky enough to get to purchase it off them, and, uh, yeah, it's just a, a treasure to own and, uh, and fly. Now, uh, what year was it made? It was built on the uh, 21st of May 1941. Wow, that's a pretty old aircraft. So, yeah, my birthday in... Uh, but a little bit older than me. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> now, uh, how is she to fly? It is a lovely aeroplane to fly. 
Um, it, uh, it's quite hard to fly. It's very heavy uh, and it's got a high rate of sink. Mm-hmm. And sitting back in the rear cockpit back there with the radial engine out the front, you actually get no forward visibility at all. You can't see the runway. If you see the runway, that's not a good thing. <laughs> You're diving Because it's much. usually out to the side and you don't <laughs> like that. <laughs> Yeah, so when that when that runway is out, if straight in front of you, you're in trouble. But That's so right. Do you normally do you come in in a curved approach or? Um, yeah, often I'll come in in a curved approach and uh, just set it up and uh, just look out the sides and and hope not to see runway. Okay. What kind of speeds are we talking about? For um, you come in on final about uh, 80 miles an hour, and uh, cruising along you're doing about 100 miles an hour. Okay. And stall speed? Stall speed's probably around uh, 60 miles an hour clean. Okay. Um, but uh, with flap that'll reduce slightly back to 50, 50 miles an hour. And it does actually have the flaps? And it does have cool. flaps. Okay. It's got quite a weird setup. It's a ratchet system to put down the flap. So the handle, you've got to pump it up and down to ratchet the flaps down. And then to retract the flaps, you push the handle down, they come up all in a, in a oh. hell of a hurry. <laughs> so a go-round is an interesting time. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Try not to go round. <laughs> Indeed. So uh, what, uh, what size engine is it? It's a uh, Kina radial, five-cylinder radial, uh, 145 horsepower. And the cubic centimetres, I'm not quite sure. That's okay. It's the horsepower that we like. That's right. So you've been flying it for a short time. What else have you been flying? What's your flying career been? Uh, My flying career, I started off in uh, general aviation, just flying for fun. Always been involved in old aeroplanes. My first aeroplane was an Oster and used to fly that around. And then uh, I bought a Cessna 180. And I've also been fortunate enough, I was an aircraft engineer for a while and uh, worked for duty pay and got to fly Harvards and Trojans and been flying P-40s and Wirraways. and yeah, tough very, life. Very lucky person to get to fly a lot of large variety of aeroplanes. Definitely. That's a good place to be. That's right. And uh, for a career now, I fly A320 Airbuses, so that's a little bit different to flying one of these. Just a tad. Yeah. A bit more glass. That's right. <laughs> Let me guess, the only glass here is on the dials and on the, uh, pers- the screen. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So where to for the future for you? Um, I'll just uh, continue airline flying for Korea, but my hobby and passion's in old aeroplanes, so get more old aeroplanes and, and keep doing air shows and lucky enough to fly with the Tomorrow Aviation Museum. Um, so I do a lot of flying for them and also a bit of flying with Judy's aeroplanes down here at Tyab. So Nice. Yeah, I'll just keep doing that as long as they'll keep having me. That's excellent. Thanks very much for coming on the show, Scott. No, no problems at all. Thanks very much. Do you have the need, the need for speed? Jetride Australia is a premier fighter experience in the country and the perfect gift for every budding top gun. From mild to wild, Jetride tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make your dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash PCDU or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. Jetride. Forget the rest, fly with the best. Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation. Hi, I'm Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stu, from the Pilot's Journey podcast. And I'm Stuart Stoll, a.k.a. CFI Stu, inviting you to join us for the Pilot's Journey podcast, where we discuss aviation, proficiency, and most of all, enjoying the journey. You can find us in iTunes or at pilotsjourneypodcast.com. And don't forget to enjoy the journey.
James Williams from Podcasters Emporium and you're listening to Plain Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. Mark Pracy from Jet Ride Australia. We're here at Tyab, but the jet's not. Where is it? Yeah, jet's stuck at uh, Echuca. Yeah. So we made the call early in the piece where we couldn't get the jet through because uh, the gap was closed off, so we just called it off and be a spectator for the day. Yeah, yeah it's been shocking weather uh, up there. You mustn't have been able to get... Uh, how's that affected your business for you, for all your rides up there at Echuca? Well, we've been pretty fortunate, actually. We've, we've dodged the weather for our rides. It's just doing the airshow bit that's uh, spoiled it for us, but... You know, it's a PA, PR system, so uh, it's a little bit disappointing. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we've got some rides to do on Monday, so hopefully the weather stays away. Now, the ironic thing is when we turned up here this morning, it was clouds and, uh, you know, fully covered. But uh, now the sun's out, you know, it's a little bit windy, but uh, hindsight's a wonderful thing. If we'd known, we could have uh, shot you back up there and got the jet down here. Yeah, we could. I mean, it's uh, 150-odd miles up there. so well, I get got... Grant to drive, mate. He'd have you up there well, in a he, he would too, actually. I've been in the car of Grant. I mean, it yeah. doesn't take too it's long to get anywhere. It? <laughs> it is, actually. <laughs> Now, uh, you're back here obviously doing the business and, uh, you know, for the jet ride and the thrill rides and all that sort of stuff. We haven't spoken to you since uh, those horrible events there at Reno. Yeah, sure. How's it been with the, the Reno Air Race? Have we heard any word on what's happening for this year? Look, the, the Americans are all systems go. I mean, uh, we've been in contact with um, Mike Mangold, keeps us up to date with everything with racing jets. And uh, it's all systems go. You know, the track's going to change. There's going to be a lot of changes. We're all expected to be at PRS, even though we don't have to be because uh, we're all certified racers now. So, uh, but th- there's going to be some changes, and there's going to be uh, FAA is going to look at people a lot harder, and racing jets are going to look at people a lot harder yeah. because the, that that's who we're and we're in the jet class. So. Uh, they're just going to keep everything under wraps, really, and uh, try not to repeat the events that went on. Yeah. So before the before the incident happened, I mean, how were you going? Did you manage to get a race around the track? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we were coming uh, seventh, actually, out right. of 16. So we were doing really well, and the jet was going faster and faster. And we had a few more things to do to, to get a, probably another 30, 40 miles an hour, which would have put us in a, a better position. But we had uh, three races to go, and then that was the end of it once the uh, P51 basically went into the crowd so yeah. that was the end of it can you tell me about the moment i've spoken to, to young mark he said you basically happened right in front of you it happened right in front of us so we we're watching it because we'd only just uh, finished our race and we waved the uh, unlimited guys off because uh, we were landing they were sort of taking off they were taxiing actually and everybody wants to watch the unlimited that's even though we're the fastest class we all still like to watch the the p51s and the sea furies fly so we had a quick debrief because our race went uh, went really well so we could pretty much get out of it really quickly and we got out to step out and watch the unlimiteds go around no as soon as we stood out and looked up in the sky that's when we seen uh, jimmy lee with p51 pretty much going you know on the 50 degree up line and we thought this looks a bit strange and then when it rolled on its back we sort of all said to each other look out this thing's not going to be good and it pretty much went right into the crowd, right in front of some Australians that were there that we waved to 10 minutes earlier, and uh, which was a, a bit concerning, as, as well as everybody else. But, you know, we had people in that part of the crowd that told us to stop and, and wave and, and all that sort of thing. So uh, it happened pretty much right in front of us. And I imagine, like all of these incidents do, and I mean, particularly those speeds, it would have happened very, very quickly, I it imagine. Happened, it happened very fast. There was no fire, of course, but it was extremely fast. And it was a bit surreal, to be honest. It didn't seem right. And uh, 
we had debris come up into the jet class uh, from the, the, the Mustang, so that's how close it was. The community amongst you guys, I mean, I guess in a way probably now that's brought you all much closer together, if nothing else, but uh, yeah. you guys would have been under a lot, I, mean, I know you're under the spotlight, there was lots of talk about this is it for racing and all that sort of stuff, but really I guess there's, there's an inherent understanding amongst everyone that competes that it's a dangerous sport. It is an extremely dangerous sport. Uh, it's one of the most dangerous sports you'll ever compete in. The unfortunate thing is uh, part of the fan base got uh, killed and that's that's where it's, uh, it's targeted a lot of different heartstrings and, and legalities and, and all that sort of thing. You know, everyone that's racing in the race, if they have an incident or an accident, you know, everyone's expected to know what the consequences are going to be. But uh, no one's foreseen an aeroplane going into the crowd yeah. under those sort of circumstances. It would seem to me too that most of the chorus of people, particularly over in the States, that are calling for the end of the race are probably people that don't understand what it's about and don't understand the passion behind it. I mean, the people that were there, you would assume, probably do understand it. Yeah, that, that's true. And there's also a lot of people that were injured. You know, they, they surveyed a lot of the people that were injured whether they would like the races stopped or started and, and the majority of them said keep the races going so they're, they're very passionate about the racing uh, the racing community over there is uh, has been around for a long time every time you talk to somebody they've been going there for you know 20 30 years and that seems to be a lot of people a lot of volunteers they're, they're all long time people they're not they're not new yeah. and uh, that's the spirit of the the races over there and it's 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 held within high regard well, it sounds like a very positive thing that uh, at least they're talking like it's going to come back. You say you're heading back to do PRS. When are you heading off to do that? We'll probably go around the 8th of June. We'll go over and uh, prepare the aircraft. You know, the aircraft hasn't been flying since then, so right. we'll have a look at the aircraft and uh, see what's required. I mean, things are going to change, so we're not going to go headfirst into the aircraft and make it speed up. We, we pretty much will all sit down and see what's required of us all you know they may want us to do nothing who, who knows they may slow the uh, unlimiteds down yeah we don't really know no one really knows at the moment we're pretty fortunate they're talking about racing i mean six months ago they weren't talking about racing yeah. they're talking about nothing so if we race we we we're going to be in front. So. I wonder if the biggest uh, issue for you now might be insurance. I mean, you would imagine insurance will go through the stratosphere now. For everybody. I yeah. mean, uh, for the race event as well. I mean, it, that's that's a key thing. The laws within America will allow them to race, but then who's going to insure it? And this is the big questions, I guess, yeah. that has to be asked. Uh, Ra seem to have that under control. Yep. And then all of us uh, race, individual races, have to get insurance. So um, that's going to be yet to be seen. I mean, that's another question. Well, we'll, uh, we'll certainly uh, keep an eye on it, and I hope you'll keep us updated on how yeah, things sure. are going. Now, uh, last time I spoke to Young Mark, uh, there was the word going around that there might have been a glass here coming into the uh, Pracy stable. Has that happened? Yeah, well, there's been there's been a fair bit of growth, actually. We've got four L39s at the moment wow. that we're uh, uh, operating. So we've got one in, Bun uh, one in uh, Gympie, and we've got one in uh, Echuca, and we've got one in... Hunter Valley, right, and we also have the race jet in uh, Reno. So you're enough to start your own air force the way you well, go. Well, exactly, and we've got some good guys who work for us. Phil Frawley works for us. He's a uh, squadron leader, current squadron leader uh, in the Royal Australian Air Force, and he's um, highly experienced. And he, he uh, works for us. We uh, we do have the glass air. It's 
pretty much ready to go. If you spent three, da- if you could get a spare three days, I reckon she's right to go. Yeah. So that's where it is at the moment. All right, we better get up there then. Yeah, that's right. I mean, <laughs> we've got plenty of people ready to fly, but no, I'm ready to fix it. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's always going to be a problem for yeah, you, so I imagine. Yeah, we imported it from the States. It's an ex-Reno racer, and uh, it's got 360 horsepower for a Glass Air 3, so it should get up and go. The Mark, young Mark was flying in it over there. It's doing something like 260 knots or something. I've never flown in it, so, so it seems to go all right. I mean, we just need those spare few days to get it up and going and, and get it certified. Get yep. flying. Get flying, absolutely. Well, Mark, it's uh, it's a shame that we couldn't get the jet down here to type today, but it's always great to catch up with you, mate, and we hope to see you again soon. Thanks a lot, Steve. Cheers, mate. Doug Thomas, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under, and we're standing here in front of your Pelican. Could you tell us what a Pelican is? Pelican's a Russian-designed twin-engine amphibian. Uh, it's designed by Chernov, and he's uh, had a hand in developing and uh, designing a large number of seaplanes in Russia. Uh, this is fairly popular in Russia, but it's the only one here in Australia. I've been building it now for about six years, and I'm still uh, battling away with it. It will fly eventually, and uh, my hope is to be able to use it to fly over a lot of water or rugged terrain, particularly uh, to and from Flinders Island in Tasmania, where uh, if you fly a single over there, you've always got your heart in your mouth because the moment you leave Australia, the engine starts running rough. As soon as you're out over the water and beyond glide range, right? Absolutely. (laughs) It's inevitable. Now, how does the uh, gear work in terms of, does it fold back alongside the hull? The gear... uh, uh, rolls forward, both gears roll together forward and they slide up straight forward like that and they clear the water sufficiently so as you can uh, land on uh, land or water at your will. The uh, tail wheel remains fixed so uh, it's a fairly accurate angle that you have to approach the water by otherwise your tail wheel will work like uh, an arrestor cable on an aircraft carrier. Okay, and what kind of engines has it got? Well, these are Jabiru engines, which are, uh, they've been designed and built in Queensland, and uh, they're still developing them. Quite a few people are quite happy with the development. It's a lot to develop uh, an engine for an aircraft, and uh, needs... Uh, it needs to be constantly reviewed, of course. And uh, what speed will this run at when you've got it up and running? I expect it to cruise around 70 to 75 knots. So it's, so it's not very fast, but I don't care because I like to travel slowly. Yeah, travel, it's, it's, travelling is half the fun and uh, enjoying the view. Exactly. There's no rush for me. I'm <laughs> retired. How long do you think until you've got it finished? Well, it could be any amount of time because, as we all know, the weight of the paper <laughs> must exceed the weight of the aircraft before it's allowed to fly. So experimental VH or RA? It's experimental VH, yes. And uh, how are you going with, if it's the only one of its kind in Australia, how are you going with all the paperwork? Is there any special hurdles you've got to go through? It's very difficult because, of course, any paperwork that you have had from Russia has to be translated and you don't always get an accurate translation. So I'll have to make my own paperwork oh, and that, wow. that'll take time. That definitely takes time. That's uh, So why did you pick a Pelican with all this work that you've got to do? Well, I was designing my own and I found that uh, I could get one uh, from Russia pretty much after my uh, my own design and a lot of the development was actually done for me. Probably a bit safer too. <laughs> now you've got C-rays and other such aircraft like that. How does this compare to the C-ray? Why, why not grab one of them? The C-ray is a single engine aircraft. 
Uh, it's very nice to fly, it's very kind to fly. Great kit to build if anyone's thinking of building a kit, a Sea Ray is a, a very good kit to build. But of course it's limited by the fact that it's got one engine. Now, as I said, when you're leaving Australia and you're heading off towards the likes of Flinders Island or you're flying over rugged terrain, it's just very uh, comforting to have two fans going, you know. Yeah, and uh, obviously it's got enough power in the, per engine to be able to keep you aloft quite nicely. You're looking at 80 horse for each engine here, and uh, that's an awful good power-to-weight ratio. That is, that is good. So it should jump out of the water. <laughs> it should very, unstick very well. So how long have you been flying? I started, I had a commercial licence back in 1968, so I've been around for a fair while, but uh, my daughter has actually got more experience and more hours than I've got, but, <laughs> it's, it's, but yeah. I've, I've only got about eleven or 1,200 hours. So. It's the way of things, isn't it? The, the kids wind up exceeding and passing us. They do, in, <laughs> in every respect. Indeed. The trouble is they know it. <laughs> yes, I'll go with that one. And uh, so how, how long have you been flying floating hull and has it all been floating hull your UFC? No, I've been uh, uh, introduced to floating hull uh, around uh, 1994-95 and uh, bought the kit in 96 for the Sea Ray, finished it in 1998, first flight was in May 1998 uh, and I've been happily flying the Sea Ray uh, since. You have your series of adventures but... Uh, Yes. We all do. Yeah, and um, they're a lot of fun. A Sea Ray aircraft okay. flying, landing on water is really something quite special. That's it's, I'm very, very attracted to that. Very different from uh, land operations. Every landing you do on a seaplane is different from the last one. I've heard that. Yeah. Uh, have you done any uh, floats, amphibian type float work? I haven't, and it's quite different. You mm. require a separate endorsement if you want floats or floating hull. It's not the same endorsement. And the reason is because the uh, technique is quite quite different. Are you going to go up to the splash in at Lake Boga? Unfortunately, no. I spend most of my time in the Philippines and uh, I'll, I'll leave for the Philippines at the end of this month. Okay. So, I'll, I'll, unfortunately, I miss that one, but I, I have been to several at Lake Boga and I do enjoy that. I'd recommend anyone go up there. It's a marvellous uh, a marvellous place to go. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time, sir. Great pleasure. Squadron leader Adrian Burge, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. How are thanks, you going? Thanks very much. It's a good day to be here. Excellent. Now, uh, Adrian, we're standing next to a CT4 uh, from the Point Cook RAAF Museum, is that correct? That's correct. Okay, can you explain a little bit about how this aircraft is important to the RAAF? Well, uh, CT4 is one of it was the mainstay trainer that we had for many, many years, sort of probably from mid-70s to early, uh, about 1989. Yep. So it was the mainstay of our uh, initial basic training. So uh, pilots would come into the Air Force, they would do about 65 hours on the CT4 and then proceed across to Pierce and WA. And uh, for a great many years, they finished on the Mackie, which was a jet trainer, and then later on they would complete their training on the PC-9, which was a replacement to the Mackie. Yep. So it was our primary mainstay trainer for a long time. And it's certainly what I trained on when I joined the Air Force. I was going to say, how many hours have you had in this? Uh, not that many. I did pilot's course, so I would have done about 65 hours on pilot's course, and I've probably flown about 10 hours worth in the last... 20 or 30 years since I've completed. Okay, and how, how did you come into the Air Force? You came in direct as a pilot? Yeah, I came direct in. Uh, I was, your, your, uh, I suppose, a quintessential um, plane spotter kid. Yep. All, all I ever wanted to do was fly, and I joined the Air Force, and 30 years later, I'm still here. And uh, what, what have you flown while you've been here? Basically, I did uh, completed a pilot's course, went to HS 748s, which is a big old um, uh, sort of transport-type trainer airplane. Did a few years on that, flew the Caribou up in Sydney, uh, up in Richmond for a few years, then basically I've been instructing ever since. So I did instructor's course, uh, flew PC-9s at Pierce, uh, flew PC-9s at CFS at our instructor school, 
and then I've done quite a number of years flying uh, Super King Airs out of East Sale, being the check and training manager there. And uh, now you're with the uh, museum as a that's part time, yeah? Uh, no, no, it's, a, it's the uh, I'm the only full time uh, uh, uniform person at the museum, so I run basically look after the flying operations. There's a number of staff that look after the you know the curator and all the museum bits. My my job is to look after the flying side of the airplanes. So you were pretty busy last week with the air show. Absolutely, and uh, it was a bit of a hair on fire because uh, I'd only been the job two weeks but I, I was only understudying so it wasn't working too hard. Okay well let's look at again at the CT4 can you give us a quick run through of um, the various components what, what kind of engine it's got in it um, the, the basic structure of it and so on? I would probably be lying if I knew the exact serial number of the engine or that sort of stuff oh, I no. think it's an IO360 it's a 210 horsepower flat six uh, engine don't don't quote me on the actual uh, number of it I'm fairly new um, it's uh, it's stressed to 6G minus two, but we we fly it very gingerly. So we don't normally fly it above about plus four and minus one. So, but it's fully aerobatic. Uh, has a constant speed prop, fixed undercarriage as you can see, side by side, which is the ideal training um, configuration. So you can see the student yeah, reach over um, and smack them. And oh, hey, in the old days, you used to get a thump in the head, but we're all very nice these days, and we treat our students very kindly. So we, we're not allowed to hit them in the head anymore, which. That's fine, even uh, if they deserve it. Where's the yeah. good old days? <laughs> exactly. No. Um, so, yeah, it's fully aerobatic and it's our basic trainer. In actual fact, it's still being used as our basic trainer, but we don't operate them at Point Cook anymore. Our basic training is actually done in Tamworth with British Aerospace. They run the contract, and so uh, they're on a slightly different version to the ones that we've got here. Uh, but so, in actual fact, our basic training is still being done on the CT4. It's the CT4F, isn't it? Uh, no, the CT4B. B, okay. Uh, the CT4F was uh, a derivative, of, I think might be Raytheon or one of those companies have got um, but no no we don't it's a it's a CT4B okay now what kind of show are you going to give us today with this today not nothing too complex we're actually putting a formation of uh, three CT4s so the three CT4s uh, that you can see on the line here and two wind shields so they'll do a just a basic fly pass they're not qualified or we don't we don't do formation aerobatics so they'll just do a series of passes and formation changes, and then one of the wind jills uh, will break off in the middle of the show and do an aerobatic routine. Okay. And the other the other four aircraft will just come and land. So a fairly okay. basic, but it's pretty stock standard air show piece. Yep, just showing the showing the aircraft, letting people see and hear. Yes, it. yes, okay. absolutely. Adrian, thank you very much for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure. Peter Clements, Steve Deeth, welcome to the show. How are we doing? Good. Excellent. Great day. Now, guys, you're going to be flying a, a few of the Harvards in the Southern Nights. Yep. Uh, can you tell us where the Southern Nights came from? It started uh, 12, 13 years ago. Yeah, about 13 years ago. Uh, with the same crew that, that are in them now. And um, it, the, 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 one of the early Avalons had the Roaring Forties over from New Zealand. And uh, a few of the owners of uh, Harvards at the time uh, suggested that we could do it. And they very graciously offered their aeroplanes. And, and Doug Hamilton, for example, owned one of the aeroplanes. And so it was a mixture of owners. And, and then people like Deethy and I uh, jumped into them because we had the hands and feet that could do it. And uh, we cranked it up and it was really for that Avalon about 12 years ago. And then since then, we've been uh, all around the country with it. How long did it take you to get it up and running? A good long weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I was fortunate I'd come out of the roulettes not that long before and I really just transported you know the roulette precise SOPs into the into this team and so Steve how long did it take you to come up to speed with those SOPs yeah we spent uh, so I'd been doing a lot of flying with the RAF museum as private pilot or as a commercial pilot um, so we'd sort of we'd done a lot of the SOPs but it was really easy to have someone like BD who'd come out of the roulettes who said like we do this and this and this and then we'd say, how about this? He'd say, no, no, that doesn't work. 
Okay, so we don't do that. Um, <laughs> and we kept it, when you watch the whole show, it's a simple show. Um, we, we haven't simple. changed it much over the last 12 years. No. But it works fine, it looks good. We've got smoke and noise. So it works very successfully. We've definitely got the noise of the Harvards. Yeah, it's great. And look, the, the whole thing about it is that we, we're not a professional full-time team, you know, and um, we don't pretend to be. We know we have all have limitations, so we've designed it to be very simple so that we can put it together very quickly um, and without using up the aeroplanes, the beautiful old aeroplanes' energy and, and time too much, and we look after them as well as we can. How, um, like how often do you practice and rehearse before shows and things like that? Normally we get together a day before and do whatever we need to do to get up to speed in that time. And look, because we've been doing it for so long and we haven't changed the show that much, it really doesn't take that long to get up to speed. It really, because to be honest, we, other, we do other air shows aside as, as individuals as well. So we're always flying Mustangs or, or T28s or Harvards or you know so we're very current with low level aerobatics individually a lot very current with formation so to put the show back together is actually very easy and you've got a three aircraft show and a five aircraft show haven't you uh, we've got a four and, a, and a, in fact we've got a three yeah. if we if we lose a couple of airplanes we've got a four which is our main show and today we've got a five ship does that give you a couple of opposing solos? Yeah, we have that in all the shows. We have we, solos. Yeah, we always have the, the rolling cross and a bomb burst, and the, you know you have to have a couple of gaspers, as yeah. they call them. A couple <laughs> of gaspers. Yeah, well, at Point Cook there were a few gasps going on <laughs> last week, and uh, my understanding is there was probably a few um, choice words in the cockpit as well. It looked pretty windy up there. You guys were really uh, having to do a pretty good job to keep in, in nice and tight. Yeah, look, it was hard work, and look, a lot of the times in this sort of wind, it's it's not that rough sometimes in the aeroplanes. If it is, it that becomes really hard. The hard part is keeping in position. Sorry about the noise. The hard part is keeping in position so you don't cross crowd lines and 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 break uh, break limitations with the crowd. So that's that's probably the hardest part about the wind. And uh, where do you see it going for the Southern Knights? Staying with the Harvards, continuing on? Yeah, it, it works real well. It's a good, simple show, and everyone enjoys it. Okay. No reason to change. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Good Appreciate day in the office. Thank you. Cheers. We're standing here in front of this uh, beautiful T6 Harvard and we're here with Guy Burke. Guy, welcome. Thank you. Tell Thank us you. a bit about this aircraft and uh, what it's like to fly. Well, this is a, um, a Harvard or a Texan. If you're, um, the Americans tend to call them Texans, the New Zealanders and the British call them Harvards. And they were a World War One, oh, sorry, World War Two training aircraft that uh, trained a lot of pilots during the Second World War as part of the Commonwealth um, flight training scheme to supply pilots for the uh, the war both in uh, Europe and in Asia. And uh, a lovely thing to fly. There's quite a few of them uh, around in Australia. I think we've got uh, just over 10 flying right. and um, they keep you honest. There's a, there's a saying out there, if you can fly a Harvard, you can fly just about any of the other warbirds because they are quite a tricky aeroplane on the ground if you let them get um, a little bit sideways yeah. in a crosswind because they've got a fairly narrow track undercarriage and quite a long fuselage so they tend to want to weathercock in the wind. And also with a crosswind, they're prone to lifting a wing if you don't keep the other on into wind as the tail's coming down. So they're a very good trainer. Um, and most pilots that progress onto things like the Mustang or the Spitfire or the Kitty Hawk need to have quite a few hours in the Harvard beforehand. I remember Alan Arthur saying that uh, he felt that the, the Harvard should have been progressed to from the P-40 because the P-40 was easier to fly than the Harvard. Yes, that's uh, quite a few people have, um, uh, would agree with that. In fact, they say there's two types of pilots. There's ones that have ground-looped uh, Harvard and there's ones that are going to ground-loop. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yes, but touch wood and uh, touch wood. It hasn't happened to me yet, although I've done quite a lot of instructing. I've probably got more hours in the back than the front, actually, of a Harvard, so a lot of training in the back. And I've seen some interesting uh, angles from the back. Like you could say, but haven't ground loop one yet. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, for those of us, uh, those of our uh, listeners that are not familiar with uh, with the aircraft, tell us about the power plant and uh, you know what gives us all that talk and wonderful sound. Yeah, well, the uh, power plant on the, these is a nine-cylinder air-cooled radial. They're uh, 1,340 cubic inches and um, 550 horsepower. Um, they rev at 2250 RPM for takeoff, and we normally, for our aerobatic routine, run at about 2100 RPM. And then we uh, control the power with the throttle and their supercharged engine, so you can actually um, uh, they'll hold the power up to about 10,000 feet. So, um, but they're uh, quite an easy engine to operate. You're, um, they are, you can overspeed them if you come back at idle and then try and put on power again too quickly. The propeller governor can be a little bit too, a little bit slow to to catch up, and you, they can't, you can't over rev the engines if you're not careful. But apart from that, they're um, they're quite an easy engine to operate. And you talk about the, the possibility of ground looping and all that sort of stuff. Tell us about your initial impressions the first few times you got in when you, you put the power in and you've got that torque effect coming along. That must be something really to, to get yeah, a, to look, hang on. Look, the torque effect's not that noticeable in these. They're quite a big aeroplane uh, for their power. They're, it's certainly there, but um, you're too busy at that stage of the takeoff just keeping it straight. You, have, uh, you don't want to second guess yourself in a lot of these aeroplanes. You just keep the aeroplane straight and use rudder as required. The more torque aeroplanes are flown to be the Mustang and the Spitfire, the Mustang especially because it's. Um, as they put bigger and bigger engines in the airframe throughout its development, they never increase the size of the fin and rudder, unlike the <laughs> later model Spitfires and things yeah. like that. So, yeah, the, the Mustang, you've got to be a little bit careful putting the power on too quickly, too soon, especially and, and not getting the tail up too quickly because you can run out of rudder to keep it straight. So the Mustang is very much torque limited. Uh, Spitfire, um, the ones I've flown have the bigger fin and rudder on them, so they're pretty good. Uh, and we don't use as much power for takeoff in the Spitfire as you do for a Mustang. And the Kitty Hawk's actually pretty good as well. But um, these, yeah, the, tor- the torque's there. you just got to be a little bit careful and be aware of it. Now, the aircraft are getting on in age uh, a little bit. So uh, tell us about the maintenance regime. They must take a lot of work to keep them in this uh, fantastic condition that we see here. Yes, the, um, they do. Uh, they're, they're treated like with kid gloves. They're, um, uh, and the maintenance, especially at the old, the old aeroplane company here, is very good. And uh, anything that um, needs fixing gets fixed if there's an oil leak or something like that that we find we won't go flying we don't want to risk the airframes um because they are old but they're very solid they're very strong we don't fly them anywhere near as hard as they would have been in military service we keep the g down to three and a half g if we can for looping maneuvers and um and two g for any rolling maneuvers just to try and uh, prolong the airframe life of the aircraft and make sure that our kids and grandkids can enjoy them in the future absolutely yeah uh, guy you've mentioned uh p51 spitfire the P40. Yep. I understand you fly the Trojan as well. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, to use a phrase Steve was ready to ask Steve Deeth, is there anything you don't fly? Uh, anything I don't fly? Um, oh, there's a number of things I haven't flown, but... Um, A380, for example. Yeah, something. A380, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I fly the 767 with work. No, the A380 would be a nice aeroplane to fly, but no, if I was... If someone said, right, guy, which aeroplane that you haven't flown you'd love to fly, uh, I'd have to... I've always loved the the Lancaster, Lancaster bomb, or the mm. Mosquito. Now, there's no mosquitoes flying, although there won't, will be one soon from New Zealand. Um, them, I believe, are in progress. Yes, yeah, so even this year, though, there's a talk that it might be finished. So that or the Lancaster, I'd have to, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, um, I'd crawl over hot coals. <laughs> but, I mean, it's a, it, this, the industry is as such that you, you get invited to fly these aeroplanes. If you, you can't really walk up and just say, hi, can I fly your Lancaster or can I fly your Mustang? It's a... It's just a matter of being an enthusiast and being around, getting to know people, have the, the required experience. And then um, I've been very lucky that I've been you know, fortunate to to been invited to fly the aeroplanes up at Tamora as well. And you fly um, the Hudson? Yes, I fly the Hudson. Yeah, the Hudson's a lovely thing to fly. Lovely. Yeah. It's um, it's the only one flying in the world which sort of flashes through your mind about five times on a short final when 
you're um, coming into land, you know, it'd be over the front page of all magazines in the world if you ground looped it. So it's um, like all these things, very valuable aircraft owned by, um, yeah, I don't own the aeroplane, so I'm very conscious of making sure we, we fly them as safely as we can. And uh, and um, each time, each, at the end of each day when they're back in the hangar, nice and safe, you can then relax and take a, have a big sigh. Yeah. I was saying the same thing about the Sabre. He uh, attributed, he said it was like juggling a Ming, priceless, irreplaceable Ming vase in front of a, a crowd. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's very Tense. true actually. <laughs> especially the P-40F, the amount of work that they put into that firewall Ford, because it's... Uh, that's the no Allison, P- isn't it? No, that's a Merlin. Oh, it's the Merlin yeah. engine, okay. Yeah, it was the only one uh, in the world flying for a while. There's another one in the UK now with the, the Merlin, but uh, Judy was the first to get hers going, and um, Judy Pay, and uh, they basically had to remanufacture everything from the firewall Ford, because there's nothing left in existence anywhere, so yeah. that's a, that was a huge job, and... Um, yeah, it's just a, it's a work of art, that aeroplane. It's fantastic. Well, we saw you throwing that around at uh, the centenary flight at, uh, a couple of years ago. That's that right. was you. Yeah, yeah, you caught it. At Melton. Yeah. Yeah, that's that right. A very beautiful display. Yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of displays, Guy, you're about to uh, saddle up and head out with the Southern Knights, so we're looking forward to a uh, great display. Looks like right. the weather's finally been yeah, going to us, so it should lovely, be good. So. All right, terrific. Thanks. Yeah. Well, the sunshine's finally out, and we're standing here with Matt Hall. Matt, it's glad uh, we're glad to see you here, given we didn't think you'd make it at all with the weather. Yeah, it's, uh, it uh, took a bit of effort to get down here, but um, yeah, we made it in yesterday afternoon, and uh, and it's been it turned out to be a fantastic day. I uh, noticed from some of your uh, tweets last night that uh, you had to take a rather circuitous route to get here. Yeah, I, I was originally planning on coming uh, straight down the guts, but uh, yeah, with uh, the basic forecast being uh, 700 foot and uh, rain, it, it didn't really work that way. So I ended up coming coast left the uh, left at Newcastle. I didn't cross uh, back into Australia until uh, sailing Victoria, so right around the bottom of the co- bottom oh, of Australia, yeah. Well, I remember the first time we spoke to you, you told us that you actually enjoy doing navigation, so I guess that would have been uh, something, you know, something uh, back back into something you like doing. Yeah, it was it was definitely something that was, uh, you know, I, I probably was glad to get here, but uh, I do enjoy flying around, and um, but when there's the stress of weather, it's always a bit, um, you just want to be on the ground in the end. Now, before we go into talking about uh, your routine and what you've been doing the last 12 months since we spoke to you, the last time I had a look on your website, I expected to see you upright and walking around and talking about your helicopter flights. Instead, I saw you lying in a hospital bed. What was going on with that? Yeah, I ended up um, I ended up rupturing a disc when uh, with uh, some of the displays I was doing. Uh, I knew I had a sore back, and uh, I kept I kept thinking it'll get better, it'll get better, until it didn't get better. And uh, basically, my surgeon, uh, yeah, when I started getting a few. Uh, more serious symptoms he basically said no we're going to cut this thing out right now um so still got the disc there still got the bone but we just trimmed it all up and um back flying again six weeks later now is that a is that something that's come about from so many years of pulling sustained g's i remember you saying at one time before we spoke to you that it was an issue for some pilots yeah pilots. yeah i'd be uh, i'd be a fool to say that uh, the flying hasn't had anything to do with it um i i don't necessarily think that uh, flying these planes even though it's much higher g than the than the uh, jet fighters yeah, it probably is not no worse for me than it was flying the jet fighters. You know, because at least I'm straight when I'm flying these. Whereas in the jet fighters, you're often twisted in the seat while you're flying. So, um, you know, I think the flying is definitely something that contributes to it. But uh, it's just something I have to continue to manage because I'm not giving up flying. No, it's exactly a small <laughs> price to pay. Exactly, indeed. Hey, uh, so with the routine that you did today. How has that evolved from when we last spoke to you at Avalon when you were just introducing it? Uh, basically, I've, I've, it's it's the same uh, same songs and same format. Basically, I'm running. Uh, I've I've just modified it through suggestions from people about how to uh, how to just tighten it up and how to um, yeah, how to make sure that uh, yeah, there's a couple of things I did which apparently people went, oh my goodness. So I, I, that's, I don't want to scare people while I'm flying. I, I, I haven't scared myself doing the display, but I don't want to also scare other people. So I've changed a few things here and there just so that. Uh, 
it looks uh, not as scary but still spectacular. Okay. Uh, we were standing over there at uh, Judy Pay's old aircraft company and uh, watching you disappear behind the hangars from our perspective and it was very impressive. We got some audio of you going right over the top of us and <laughs> that, that, I mean, I know it looks good for everyone here but for over there it was just amazing to watch you in action. It's a noisy aircraft when you're near it, when it goes past it uh, with the power on. Oh yeah, it's a good kind of noise. Yeah. One part of the display that, I mean the high speed stuff is fantastic. Standing up there when you've got right on the edge, when you're just hanging it off the prop, I mean, what sort of uh, power settings have you got in here? Is that just full on, or you're managing the torque, all that sort of yeah, stuff? Yeah, that, that's uh, full on, and uh, what I'll do is I'll actually get it up there, uh, I'll slow the plane down with the throttle, then as it comes to a stop, I'll bring the power in, and then I'll actually even increase RPM, um, and I'll play the RPM to control the torque. Um, I can't put I can't put the same RPM in when I'm going fast because the tips go supersonic. So when I'm stopped though, I can run higher RPM. So I'll I wind it up, but then when it starts to talk on me, I'll bring some RPM out. Are you holding it there with ailerons to help prevent counter the talk? Or I'm actually um, believe it or not, I'm slapping the controls. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm uh, doing that and I'm doing that. And I'm doing this and I hold my tongue out and my mouth a little bit sideways and uh, and it all seems to work. <laughs> You still have the uh, the music playing in the iPod, or you know, is, you're doing it to the routine, obviously. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, I've got a uh, basically got a setup now where um, somebody sits with the uh, with the music guys for the air show, and uh, they they sit there, and uh, we've basically just got a script where uh, every few seconds he'll press the mic uh, and transmit on a uh, on my second radio in the aircraft transmits on that, so I hear where the music's up to, so I can uh, I can I can uh, manipulate it to key locations. Hence why I can get the smoke in time with the music and uh, and, and be centre stage. You know, at the right times. Okay. One of the other things you did while you were here that we haven't seen you do before was the race. You, you raced a little bit of a, of a, looked like a dirt sprint car sprint or something. Yeah. Thing, yeah. <laughs> that was really interesting because they gave him the green flag and he was going and you were still all the way out here hammering down the straight. Yeah, yeah. I, that's the first time I've done a car race. You know, Judy asked if I could do it and I said, yeah, no problems. And yeah, they said car race. So, um, I takes it out to the end, and the first time I saw this so-called car was when he came out at the other end. I'm like, that's not a car. <laughs> so it's a um, big set of wheels. Yeah, I was thinking, I'm not even about to see this thing when I'm racing it so small. So, um, but uh, as it turned out, you know, I went round and uh, you know, set up, and I was thinking they were going to wave the green flag when I was maybe 100 metres behind him, and I was halfway to Melbourne, and they said go. <laughs> so uh, it was. So then, what that meant is I got a serious amount of speed up. By the time I overtook him, I was um, I was doing probably 250 knots. And he's doing uh, all of, I don't know, 80. <laughs> it, looked, it looked very impressive as you pulled vertical to do the turn. Yeah. Because you didn't, you just came in over as a loop. Yeah, exactly. You pulled vertical, went through the loop and came down. And then you had a heck of a lot of crab to stay lined up on the runway. You were sort of coming along like this. Yeah, yeah. Very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's actually... Um... I was actually trying to just slow it down a few times there because I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to blitz him. I better make it somewhat fair. So I kicked, pulled the power back and kicked in some rudder to try and slow it down so at least it'd be a fair finish. Yeah, it didn't sound like you're going flat out on that second pass. So yeah, 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 I pulled the power a little bit. <laughs> so would you do that again? Oh, yeah, for sure. We've actually got um, yeah, our sponsor, Marcel. They uh, they run a race car as well. So uh, I think I'm going to end up racing the Marcel race car in the uh, nice. not too distant future. Now, after you, so you came back and that was the uh, the, the race. So you, you beat him at the post, I believe. We are yeah. over there. We couldn't really tell. Yeah. But uh, then you went up and you were doing some manoeuvres and then you sort of came back and raced him again because he went back down. Yeah, yeah. Well, the plan was there. We're going to see if we could do a photo shot down the runway. But um, he didn't have any radio on board, so we couldn't really communicate. So uh, he, he sort of got down there and took off. A little bit ahead of me, I raced part, raced to catch up to him, but then he was slowing down. I overshot, so but everyone said it looked good, so that's what that's all we're doing is trying to get something that looked good. Cool, and I, I also noticed that when you took off at the start before you went round, 
you couldn't just take off, turn a nice bank and come around. No, you, you sort of like, I think you went inverted and did a bit of a flick or things like that. Yeah, you know, you, you, in a plane like this, it, they're very unstable. They're very hard, very hard to fly them um, straight and level. <laughs> Last time we spoke to you was uh, pretty much the start of 2011. You were talking about some, uh, some new projects you had on the go at that time. So how have they progressed now since the start of 2012? Um, yeah, some of the projects didn't eventuate, um, probably more through just running out of time. Um, we, we do, a couple of the projects did eventuate and we bought the two-seater now. So uh, we're, uh, we're doing a lot of promotional stuff in the two-seat extra 300L. Uh, we've had it painted up so it's uh, exactly the same colours as, uh, as this plane. We're doing corporate work in that and a lot of TV work. Um, and uh, yeah, corporate speaking has been coming along as well, so doing a reasonable amount of motivation speaking, you know, talking about my life and how uh, yeah, how lots of ups and downs, but always you know, always keeping an upward vector. Yeah, when yeah. Uh, when things are you know, down, you just crashed a plane in in a, you know in a different country, and uh, the next next your next race you come third. So that's sort of uh, yeah. how to refocus, regroup, and keep going. Well, we've had the privilege of hearing you do one of those uh, motivational talks, and uh, they're they're wonderful, highly recommended if uh, if anybody gets a chance to do it. Matt, uh, you go home for that one now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, Matt, uh, one more thing uh, I wanted to talk to you about was uh, rotary wing. I believe you're doing a helicopter license. Told us that the last time. You've been progressing with that, or has time been a factor there too? Yeah, time's been a factor there too. Um, I, uh, I, I was initially was racing through it, and then. Um, and then uh, I got to the part where I had to do my theory exams and uh, trying to dedicate time to theory versus, you know, I just duck out and do a quick fly. So I was, um, I did exactly what I, don't, I tell people not to do. I uh, just went and flew instead. Um, <laughs> what I discovered is I could do my GFPT, but not have actually done any um, theory at that point. So I went and did my GFPT. So now I fly around the local area with my family on a, in an R44. We go out to lunch and things in a chopper. I still haven't done any theory. <laughs> so uh, oh, that's April. April, April I'm um, April. Okay. Next, yeah, okay. I'm doing All right, we'll theory. release this after April anyway. Yeah, well, let us know if you did. Yeah. <laughs> so how was the, uh, the, you know, the first, have you had any helicopter experience before that at any time in the Air Force? Have you had a chance to do that? I guess not. I had a ride or two, that's about it. So, um, yeah, the first real flying I did in a chopper was with, um, yeah, when I, I did a, a comparison between a chopper and the race plane, yeah. I flew with one of the instructors and went, you know what, this is kind of cool. <laughs> and then I uh, thought, one day I'm going to do that, and about a week later I went and signed up for a course. Yeah. <laughs> nice. What's it like trying to keep it in the hover the first few times you do it? I imagine, I mean, I've never done it myself, I imagine that would be very challenging. Well, yeah, it is. It is different, um, and it's one of those things. It's like formation flying. Um, when you're first trying to do it, you go, "Oh my God, this is so hard!" But uh, it's, it's actually just about get get distracted and then just stop thinking about it, and yeah. it works. And uh, all we did is we just went into a confined area between some trees, and the instructor said, "Just stay here for a moment." I'm looking at the trees, going, "Oh my goodness, there's trees everywhere." There you go, mate. You're hovering at two feet, not moving. And, go, and I looked at the ground, then all of a sudden I start. <laughs> so yeah, just it's just basically uh, distract your brain. Well, yeah. did, you, did you see uh, Wicko doing his R22 demonstration, going all over the place? Yeah, that was me. If I, if I ever try to hover, hover, that's what you see me doing. I'm all over the place. It, yeah, but it, 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 come, it, it comes very quick. Yeah. Matt, it's getting very noisy here at Tyab with all the aircraft departing, so we might leave it there, but it's always a privilege to catch up with you, mate. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thank you. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. 
take off for the adventure of a lifetime with Ozair Services and the Turidan Flying School, where you can live out your passion and learn to fly. Book a personalised charter flight to Lake Eyre, Flinders and King Island or anywhere in Australia or enjoy an adventure flight for yourself or as a gift with scenic and aerobatic flights in the classic Tiger Moth on weekends. Take flight with Ozair Services at the Turidan Flying School. Go to ozairservices.com.au. Hi, this is Max Flight. This is Milford from Flight Time Radio. You can catch Grant and Steve each week on the Airplane Geeks podcast with their Australia Desk Report. Over on our podcast, Steve and Grant send in a bi-weekly update that covers flying in the Southern Hemisphere. Our listeners look forward to the Flying Down Under segment for the great interviews and a taste of aviation life from another point of view. www.airplanegeeks.com If you get a chance, visit flighttimeradio.com to learn a little about our radio show and podcast. Well, I've interrupted the show long enough, so let me turn all you plain crazy back over to the guys and their usual outstanding content. Cheers from America. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. Tim Connell, it has been approximately a year since we last did a Timbo's Tarmac, and that was quite a distance from here down at Avalon. It was. How you been, mate? Yeah, good, mate. Yeah, we, are. we always get dragged along to these things. Uh, Judy arrived at the uh, Avalon show in the Vampo with Bernie, popped the hatch, her first words were, Tybes on next year, you're coming to help, aren't you? So, how can you refuse Judy, Pay? Yeah, no, it's pretty hard to refuse her, especially when she's got so many great toys, like uh, at least one of the Trojans that's about to go over our heads right now. Yes, uh, well, well, she uh, would have had the P40 out line but uh, had a problem with the, the tail wheel on that one so it's gone and put away in disgrace but otherwise everything else seems to have flown for her. Yeah, she's had a pretty good day along with everyone else here. Yeah, we, uh, we're a bit lucky, uh, a little bit less wind might have made life a bit better but uh, we do what we do, deal with the weather conditions as we have to I suppose. Yeah, no, I agree, It's uh, the crosswinds have made it a bit challenging for everyone but you know, what can you do? So talk to us, how's the tarmac gone this year? Compared to Avalon, this is pretty easy to handle. <laughs> Not quite the movements we have to put up with at Avalon, but uh, now it's all gone well, and uh, it's uh, yeah. everyone here is always as a professional pilots do display, so all used to it and know what they're doing. Excellent. And any highlights or anything like that you can tell us about? Uh, four o'clock. <laughs> uh, isn't that is that four o'clock or beer o'clock? That's about right. Yes. Yeah. No, it's all been good. No, no real highlights. It's just been a steady day. So. All enjoyed it, gone well. Okay, excellent. Timbo, thanks very much, mate. See you at Avalon. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Peter Bernardi, it's been about 24 hours since we last spoke before the show. It we're has. a little more sunburned, we're a little more foot sore. Yep, but sure uh, I think we're all pretty happy it's uh, done and got done well. Extremely happy. It's, a, it's been a great, safe air show, well attended, and uh, the weather cleared up so that we could give a great display to everyone. It was a little bit wet underfoot to start off, but the uh, crowd dried it out for us by stomping all over everything. <laughs> so uh, I think the uh, people have had a, uh, had a good time. The vendors have done well, and uh, we've been uh, very, very pleased with attendances and with the air show. It was great. Yep. Now, I mean, I, the, Sabre, the Sabre had to scratch. They yeah, had a it mechanical. went out of service, and, uh, and a couple of the light planes had to... Uh, um, not fly because of the uh, crosswind. Yep. It was a bit um, testy there for a bit for a few of the lighter, lighter tailwheel aircraft, 
but yep. we still put on a good show. Yep, and the uh, the Southern Knights, three of them jumped into the t- T28s and did the Trojan Knights, and that was fantastic. It was a great show, wasn't oh, it? I brilliant. thought, oh, yeah, I wonder how they're going to do this, you know. Yeah. But it looked good, sounded great, and they did a good routine. Yep, no, that was yep. awesome. Yep. Well, congratulations, Peter. Yep. Well done for making yet another uh, tyre bear show a reality. Yep. Very successful. And we'll look forward to 2014. Yeah, well, uh, we'll uh, talk to you about that, and we'll give you a couple of weeks to recover. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Peter. Thank you very much. I tell you what, Grant, he sounded pretty sprightly considering all the stress he was under that day. And uh, yeah, I'd say uh, 2014, if uh, 2012 is anything to go by, then uh, 2014 is going to be another great show uh, that we'll just have to uh, get down there and cover again. Oh, mate, very much looking forward to it. It's a pretty good show. I've heard about previous ones. This is my actually my first one that I've been to. The the other ones I've generally wound up with a clash that I couldn't make it. And uh, I was really, really happy with what I saw and definitely looking forward to going back again in 2014. I'll tell you what, they've got a great fleet of uh, T28 Trojans down there at, uh, at Tyab and uh, it was interesting he said about the Southern Knights ended up doing uh, for the first time I guess uh, an impromptu Trojan Knights uh, display I guess it was probably the same display that they, they were describing in the interview uh, that they were going to do but uh, yeah going up there in the Trojans um, that's a, they're a wonderful aircraft I'd love watching them fly and it was great to see them doing the routine in that aircraft. Yeah the crosswind component on the day by the uh, end of the day when they were due to go on was too high for them to launch those T6 Harvards out or the Texans as the Yanks call them so the guys decided to take the uh, T28s out. They had three there. Judy Pays was there. Uh, Steve Deeths was, uh, I believe that was one of his ones down from Albury. I'm not sure who the third belonged to, but uh, yeah, it was Steve, Doug Hamilton and Guy Burke went out to uh, wow the crowd. And man, those aircraft are noisy at the best of times, but with three of them in formation during aerobatics, oh yeah. It was interesting, Grant, uh, when when you interviewed the guys from the Southern Knights, uh, we actually got across the runway to the other side of the field, but uh, by the time they took off in the T28s, I'd actually ventured back to the to the main side of the field so uh, it wasn't Peter Clemens obviously uh, going out in one of those Trojans No, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Dougie Hamilton taking one of them up uh, I'm trying to remember uh, I, I'm pretty sure I remember watching them go out I'd uh, seen Steve climb into his one and uh, definitely Guy in one of them and I'm pretty sure it was Dougie in the other one from memory. Well, Ben, uh, I tell you what, uh, one of the highlights for me is always is watching Matt Hall fly. He did some spectacular displays there. But, uh, Ben, you were uh, stuck behind the camera most of the day, but uh, show highlight for you? Very hard to pick a, uh, a favourite, actually. Those Watching those Trojans get pulled out of the hangar and started up and going, that was definitely uh, good. I didn't get to see all of Matt Hall's display because I was busy behind the camera, but uh, from the bit I did see, it was just amazing, <laughs> as always. Yeah. Well, especially from our perspective, we were on the other side of the uh, runway from the crowd. So uh, he was coming right over the top of those hangars we were standing beside and you'd hear him and then suddenly whoosh, over the top would go this aircraft. And yeah, he was pretty low. It was fantastic. That was absolutely great show. And I got my media pass signed by Matt Hall. Oh, there you go. Same here. I think I think Alan started that one, didn't he? You guys, I tell you what, I tell you what, listeners, this was the funniest thing. We'd done the interview with Matt Hall, and he had his uh, Matt Hall had been signing autographs all day, and uh, along with uh, Alan Van Padge, our, our mobile studio operator, who was also there, uh, they were all standing in line like little kids these lot, having their media passes signed. I did not partake of this, of course, because you know I'm far more mature than the rest of them. Or it might have just been that I was so sunburnt by then, my brain wasn't functioning. I think it was more that because, mate, you're just as much of a big fanboy as the rest of us. Oh yeah. So it was. In fact, Alan Van Padge actually said to Matt, can I go over and touch the plane? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And Matt sort of laughed and said, sure, knock yourself out. <laughs> and I think um, he, he would have on the prop. But anyhow. no. Yeah. Was, Spe- yeah. Speaking of the sunburn, I, I've 
believe my arms have just peeled for the second time. So um, I did a very good number there because uh, I was lulled into a false sense of security by the uh, the cloud cover early in the morning. Yes, me which, too. Which promptly burned off by the time I was too busy taking video of uh, of Grant doing his interviews uh, for me to actually notice how badly I was getting burnt and how much I should have taken advantage of the sunscreen that was uh, in my bag. Is now a good time for me to mention that I'm still nice and darkly tanned from the event? No, that, that wouldn't be a nice time. No, that's that's not a good not not a good idea. And, and a friend of mine who who does work for the Cancer Council gave me a very stern talking to <laughs> when when I happened to tweet about how burnt I was. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Uh, one of the most pristine aircraft that I saw there that day. You know, if you can pull yourself away from uh, Jim and Jenny Wickham's hangar and all those magnificent warbirds they've always got around there, and the you know the the replica Mustangs and all that sort of stuff. But uh, when you got over there and had a talk to uh, Scott Tabiner there with his with the Ryan, I mean that, that thing was just gleaming. And I mean at the time the sun wasn't even out and it was still gleaming. I mean what a beautiful aircraft. Yeah, it looked pretty good when you took it up in the air, didn't it? And we should also mention too that uh, the Roulettes also made an appearance and did their uh, special venue. I believe it was their special venue show. I've actually seen it a couple of times in the last few weeks, and uh, good to see the uh, Roulettes getting out there. And uh, well done to the organisers uh, of uh, of the air show to uh, to get the Roulettes to come over and do a display. Yeah, Ben and I were sitting down in the uh, general food area, finally getting a chance to have uh, some lunch about ooh, what was it four o'clock as they came in to finish up the show, and yeah, just room straight over top and absolutely brilliant. And uh, I should just say as we wrap up this uh, coverage of the uh, of the uh, Thai Air Show that it was great to bump into so many of our, our listeners who come up and tapped us on the shoulder and said, uh, you know, we can't stand you. No, they said, uh, we've liked the show. <laughs> great to meet all of you and um, too many to mention here. There was uh, quite a few and it's it's always great to catch up with people and know that they're enjoying the show. One other observation I might make to the organisers, perhaps for the next one, more rubbish bins. We needed more rubbish bins. There weren't many bins around. Yeah, they were filling up pretty dramatically, weren't they? But, uh, you know, again, though, uh, there were a few of us who would see some rubbish and put it into a bin. Um, I noticed a few people doing it, not as many as you might see in some other events like ooh, Oshkosh where everyone does it, but there were a number of people who, who didn't just leave it up to others to pick up some trash and that was blowing around. So well done to the crowd for helping out. Yep, fantastic effort. And uh, if they're going to have that in uh, in the years in between uh, Avalon, then it's going to have a lot to keep us busy. And, of course, you know, from my perspective, the great thing about Tyre is it's only about 25 minutes away from where I live. So the more air shows you want to put on down there, guys, the happier I'll be. <laughs> yeah, Tyre and Turidan, your two favourite places, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. They both start with T, so it's easy for a simple man like me to remember. <laughs> <laughs> is it the left T or the right T? <laughs> Okay, as we mentioned at the start of the show there, we put out a uh, bit of a request on Twitter there to uh, fire some questions at ATC Ben, uh, you know, asking about the complexities and the the inner workings of air traffic control here. And uh, we got a couple of questions. Ben, uh, we might, uh, let's see, we might kick off with Keen Burke's question. Uh, he wants to know, uh, now of course, people who don't know, is Keen is our, uh, our very keen uh, junior listener over there oh. in uh, in uh, WA. And uh, we notice also that Keen's been uh, participating on the Airplane Geek show lately, so sending some questions in there. So good on you, Keen. Thanks for sending this question in Ben he wants to know have you ever had to handle any emergencies uh, well, I haven't had anyone use the M word on me yet which is probably a good thing what's that McDonald's <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no quick quick no. catering's trying to kill us get us McDonald's that's right no um, nobody's pulled a mayday on me yet touch wood I have had a couple of pans though um, the most interesting one of course occurred on the end of a night shift at I think it was what was it 5.15 in the morning After thank you very much <laughs> 
well, it was at the tail end of it. So, you know, by this time, I'm, I'm sort of just saying things on the radio and just going, yeah, just go about your business and don't hit anybody. And this poor uh, soul and the chieftain just got to the top of climb out of Launceston and heading into uh, Hobart on the last leg of his night as well on the freight run, on the paper run down to, uh, to Hobart and Tasmania. And, uh, called a pan at top of climb because his uh, right engine had decided to stop playing the game. Oh, dear. <laughs> Which uh, yeah, certainly woke me and about four other people, uh, you know, from the uh, sort of half-asleep state there <laughs> right up to uh, you were sort of like hit the desk and went, yep, we're awake. Yeah, yeah. yes, <laughs> we're right on certainly got our Certainly got our attention, yeah, when he said, oh, yeah, we've had a right engine failure. I went, what? <laughs> Now, now, tell us about, in, in general terms, of course, uh, you know, if folks should realise when they send these questions in to uh, Ben that, uh, you know, Ben is, can't be uh, too specific in a lot of things and he doesn't, uh, you know, he's not really speaking on behalf of uh, his employer at all. But, uh, Ben, can you tell us in general terms about what sort of training you go through to handle emergencies when you, you know, from an ATC side? I mean, that must play a pretty significant role in your training when you're going through the through the college. Uh, yeah, in the, in the college, we, we go through a phase, um, which I actually rediscovered going through all my old Facebook stuff um, that uh, we go through a phase where we just start handling a lot of emergencies um, and because they're focusing on it so uh, pretty much every second airplane has something wrong has a depressurization or uh, some issue or other so you go through a lot of training in the college for it it doesn't really kick in I'd say until you've actually done one for real um, I haven't had any serious emergencies yet uh, but and is it something it, that you have to remember you know like is there a set procedure that you have to remember by rote or is it you know as it, as it would be in the cockpit of an airline where that you know okay we have this emergency we get this checklist out we have checklists actually yeah the main one we've got one that's committed to memory which is just uh, what we call the initial critical actions um, which is just the basic things of you know acknowledge the emergency and so yeah actually tell the guy that you've heard him and say so, you know in the case of the uh, the engine failure so you say all right you know Roger Pan and what do you need and um and we sort of you know start notifying supervisors and things like that and we've got a lot of assistance around us because we're in the center there so supervisors start getting involved and we get the checklist out and every checklist has got the same two first questions which is persons on board and dangerous cargo um and then the rest of it depends on the actual emergency um you know whether you've got control issues or if you're a vfr pilot that's in in cloud or and there's there's certain different things that are written on the checklist of things to ask and, and advice. Well, you know, we, we only give, ever give very general advice unless we're current on the specific aircraft that the yeah. the, uh, the pilot's flying. Generally, it's uh, other than the persons on board and dangerous cargo, there's just a few things, you know, like how much fuel and do you need any services on the other end, you know, fireys and things like that and do you expect a normal approach? And we try and intersperse the questions, obviously, because especially in this case, because it's a chieftain. So he only had uh, one pilot on board, and he had his hands full. So yeah, you can't just you can't just keep firing the questions at him either. So that's that's another thing that you trained in as well, how to sort of pace it. And keeping a, a you know a, a calm and professional demeanour while you're talking to them. I mean, I, I remember seeing a video, and it's 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 gone around YouTube. It's been around for quite some years, uh, and it's a photo of I believe a seven five seven taking off somewhere in Britain that uh, ingests a bird. Uh, uh, just as soon as it rotates and, uh, you know, obviously has to shut one of the engines down. But um, apart from watching the incredible skill of the pilot and how calm he was on the uh, on the radio, the cool, calm demeanour of the air traffic controller that's talking to him uh, was, I think, a, a critical part of that video. I'm, I'm sure you two guys have seen that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've, I've seen that that video and that's that's exactly how you've got to come across, um, especially not so much the professional pilots because they've got a lot more training and 
experience behind them. But if you get a uh, sort of a private level pilot who's you know, got maybe two, three hundred hours or something or even less maybe, and the more tense you sound, you're going to actually inflame the situation yeah. because you're getting them more worried. Whereas if you if you sound calm, cool, collected, you don't actually, you know, you can calm them down. And a friend of mine actually had a, a an issue when he was uh, on bank runs flying out to uh, to all parts of Victoria and uh, went to put the gear down in the circuit and the gear lever actually came off in his hand. Ow. Yeah. Yeah, that might get me saying a few choice words. But I'm, I'm sure choice words were said when the microphone wasn't getting pushed down. I'm <laughs> certain of that. But in in reflecting on it and hearing all the recordings and everything later, they, they actually had other pilots from the same company that were on the same frequency at the time. And the comment was that, it was like, well, you and the controller sounded like there wasn't a problem, which is how you have to be so as not to, you know, make the pilot overthink the situation, really. You can also hear it, the guys at uh, Flight Time Radio, you've got an audio from when Charlie was an active air traffic controller and he was involved in a VFR save. Yeah, that's, that's what they that's, call that's it. That's what I was going to mention, actually, was Charlie's save there. And that's, yeah. that's exactly what you've got to be very calm like that. And I mean, the, the one question that I've had a couple of VFRs that have got themselves either above or below cloud, I've never had anybody in it yet, which is the worst case of the whole lot. But uh, the first question when somebody says they're either above or below cloud is, from my perspective anyway, is are you in VMC right now? And if they answer yes, that's a big load off my shoulders because then I know, well, fine, stay out of the cloud because that that makes it a lot easier. That VFR save, folks, if you haven't heard that, get over to flighttimeradio.com and uh, that file actually is called VFR save. That is absolutely compelling listening. It goes for about an hour actually, but uh, once you start listening to it, you'll be riveted to it. I know I was. Well, uh, we got another another question here and it comes from uh, Eric up there at uh, Channel Oak up there in Sydney and uh, he wants to know... uh, who makes the decision if an airport should stay open or closed for events such as weather or security alerts, that sort of stuff? I would uh, be assuming that uh, really air traffic control wouldn't have much to do with that. Depends on the situation. As far as weather in Australia, we don't close airports for weather. If somebody wants to come in and have a go, they're more than welcome. Now, these days, a lot of companies have actually stomped on that anyway. Um, we used to generally in the airlines, there was the uh, the policy of, you know, come in, have a crack, even if the weather was below minimums, but because you're on a category one ILS, if you can pop out of the, you know, a hole in the fog at the appropriate time, then you could land. But uh, a lot of companies have actually stomped on that now and, and have instituted what they call an approach ban that if the weather is below minimums, they won't do it and, and things like that, uh, which is stems from us actually in Australia for the first time uh, about 18 months ago, probably two years ago now. We actually got our first Category 3 ILS approach system in here in Melbourne. Yep. So as, as a part of the certification for that, airlines have to institute approach bans. Uh, that's a CASA requirement just to stop them going down to the minima and, and, and trying an approach because on a, on a Category 3B approach, the minima is under 50 feet. So in a 747 or, or a similar wide-body aircraft, you will hit the ground before you actually get airborne again in the go-round. You practically, if, if the minimum is 50 feet, your bogies are on the ground before your cockpit's down below 50 feet anyhow. Yeah, or even with the, with the, where the altitude sensing is towards the, the back end of the aeroplane, if, yeah. if you start a go-round at the minimum, you will touch down. Yeah. In the go in the go round because yep. it's just too, too too much inertia to try and arrest. So it's to stop that sort of thing because um, otherwise you'll end up doing a Qantas one <laughs> <laughs> and 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 go round and not go round and go round and not go round. And when is a go round not a go round? When you're That's on the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
Yeah, no, they, no yeah. We, we, we don't close the airport. I mean, approach controllers are very good at discouraging people from making approaches because they'll have no chance of getting in, which generally gets through to the pilots, especially in the case of fog where they're up above it. And they sort of, you know, if they get told, well, you've got no chance of getting in, the pilots are quite generally quite happy just to sit up there and, and wait it out or divert or whatever. Well, it burns, it burns less fuel holding than it does coming down, having a look, putting the power on and going back up again. Correct. So generally we, we don't have people that uh, just go in and make approach after approach because it, it wears them out and, yeah. you know, it, it takes a lot of concentration and skill to fly that load, you know, on approach that low to the ground. So people don't like doing it unless they've got a half a chance of getting in. Uh, as far as Erx uh, also mentioned security alerts and things like that, if it's anything to do with the actual airport itself, as far as uh, disabled aircraft on the runway and things like that, obviously we'll close the airport for that. Uh, a lot of things like that, though, generally come from, if it's not a controlled aerodrome in particular, it'll come from the aerodrome operator if it's a VFR aircraft. But as far as security alerts and things like that, say at Melbourne, it would either come from the airport operator itself or, or as part of the emergency procedures for the airport. Every major airport has its own emergency procedures rule set that says, you know, in, in the case of whatever, to follow you know, procedure X, Y, Z. If this happens, do that. Correct. So we do we do that sort of thing. Uh, if it was anything more serious, um, we actually have a procedure where we can actually get instructions from the appropriate sections of the government um, as far as Office of Transport Security and and uh, whatever they're called now as far as the department. Um, they've, they've changed their name again. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the Department of Transport and everything else. And the department can actually give us what they what they call a, a control direction and, and to you know force aeroplanes to go certain places or close airports for whatever reason. It yeah, you know, and then that's in the case of, you know, something like a nine eleven sort of style event or something like that. That that all got put in post nine eleven. The security is, is something that we have to I guess you have to be careful talking about, but uh, something that a lot of people are interested in. It is. It's it's something that you you know you got, I'd like to explain in, in more detail, but obviously I can't say too much because of uh, you know I've got agreements in my own employment contract that have uh, you know security clauses and things like that of of what I you know official information and things like that because we do get a lot of uh, flight plans and and things like that. We don't want you getting into trouble, mate, and because otherwise we'd have no. to find some other air traffic controller to pick on. That's exactly right. <laughs> and unlike all that incident in Perth with the Queen's flight plan and all that, <sighs> stuff, and that's that's why we have all those restrictions and and everything because we get all the flight plans obviously for the entire country. So every time the uh, the prime minister goes somewhere or you know any dignitaries fly around yep. a lot of the military flights for you know, not only the australian air force but the united states air force and, and any other defense people and federal police and things like that so there's a lot there's a lot of things that we see at work that we can't say anything about because well not, there's a lot of very not, very not, good not, and valid not, reasons not, for that yeah. not classified but security sensitive information yes yeah, absolutely well here's one that i think probably uh, wouldn't be too security sensitive this one comes from david abbey i think david actually is over in new york if memory serves from the uh, facebook page and he actually sent this in a little while ago he wants to know uh, at an airport uh, that has approach control associated with it uh, he wants to know who makes the call for runway configuration is it the control tower su- is you know is it the tower supervisor or is it the approach supervisor or is there some standard operating procedure you know i guess he's talking about tolerance when the wind speed and direction changes uh, you know who makes those sorts of calls i, I, I was going to quote uh, jeb burnside here and say yes uh, it depends <laughs> <laughs> generally the the runway configuration in a place like Melbourne or such is generally a, a collaborative decision between the tower and the and approach. There's there's standard um, procedures as well of 
of what the general configurations are and max downwind uh the whether the like here at Tulla you've got things like what's your maximum downward component uh whether it's a uh, wet surface or not all those kind of things and what direction the winds are from as to whether they can go to lasso which is your sim ops land and hold short operations or you know what other runways they and whether they're departing them they love departing out over 27 don't they yeah well every approach cell where we have a tower and an approach control above it they'll actually have a a, a set of standard procedures as far as runway configurations because of you you're limited especially with Melbourne and its crossing runway configuration, you want to limit the amount of configurations that you have because it changes the airspace as far as people departing off runway 27 but landing on runway 16. You've got to get them past each other at some point. So there is generally that. There is a bit of discussion though of, especially uh, as Grant said, with the land and hold short procedures in Melbourne because the intersection of the runway is far enough down runway 34 that we can actually have the aircraft landing on 34 hold short of 27. So yep. we can actually fire either... Uh, land on 3-4 and take off on 2-7 or land on both runways simultaneously, yeah. especially during the peak hours during the day, which is when we normally do it. Rush hour, yep. And then you've got the con- consideration of like the A380 can't use 2-7 because it's not wide enough. The uh, number one and number four engine pods are actually hanging over the edge of the runway on that one, but they can yeah. use uh, the main, you know. We, we, we can stick the 380 onto 2-7, however, it requires a runway inspection afterwards. Correct. Yeah, which, you got to. Which, which sucks up six minutes of secrets. Yeah, so and then you've got. It takes an additional two slots to do to do that. So generally, we, we stick them on 3-4, but there's also, they can't land and hold short. Um, yep. the internationals, air, yeah. The aircraft specifically probably could do it if it tried hard enough. <laughs> but because the 380 doesn't have brake fans and everything like that, it'd the aircraft would have to sit on the ground for three hours to cool the brakes back down again. So, so Qantas has actually opted out of that. Um, a lot of our internationals can't do it, yep. except for Air New Zealand in uh, in their three twenties. Th- uh, they can do it, yep. and uh, and a lot of the domestic, pretty much all the domestic operators can do it. Yeah. So yeah. that that gives us a lot of a leeway because it allows us to effectively have one and three quarter runways going instead of actually having a parallel runway. I sit actually not very far from Melbourne Approach, so you you tend to hear a bit of the conversation every now and then, especially first thing in the morning of, of them discussing with the tower, look, you know, are conditions going to be okay for us to go to Lasso at, at a certain point in time and things like that. Uh, as I said to, to David on the Facebook page earlier, it, that's only for an airport like, say, Melbourne or maybe Brisbane, Adelaide, places like that. When you get to the uh, very big, expensive noise sensitive hot potato that is Sydney <laughs> everything I've just said for the last three minutes goes out the window now it becomes run by politics correct they have a document up in Sydney which I'm sure if you looked on the internet hard enough you'd probably find it because there's members of the public that live in the Sydney area that have this document and they seem to know it better than the controllers sometimes it's called the long-term operating plan for Sydney Airport and it dictates to the letter what the runway configuration is supposed to be at a certain time and what wind conditions override it and what time conditions override it and all sorts of things like that. They will go to the preferred runway configuration for the time conditions and all the other things that they've got to think of. Plus and they've also got to call a stop, uh, movement stop and not allow anyone else to take off if they're getting to their maximum movement 
improvements per hour level. Yeah, there's there's the cap as well. So Sydney's Sydney's a, a very different little thing. Like uh, I know one of the things that I've learnt, considering I'm now doing airspace near Bathurst and Orange, so we deal a lot with Sydney procedures. So it helps to have this sort of thing in the back of your mind. Is that they will run a single runway on normally the cross runway configuration, so zero seven or two five in Sydney, and they'll run that, and they have to run that by law until the delays get to twenty minutes. And only when the delays are in excess of 20 minutes and I there's some parameter attached to that and I don't know what that is off the top of my head, but I'm remembering it's it's somewhere around the 20-minute mark and when it's consistently above 20 minutes, then they're allowed to change runways and force it to the parallels. Well, don't worry, mate. If the next election sees Labor out and Senator Albanese doesn't uh, stay in as transport minister among every other portfolio he runs, then um, I'm sure that we'll see all that change again because it just depends on who's in power locally and federally as to where those uh, approach and departure paths run. It was actually quite ironic that our friends at Australian Aviation, the best magazine in the country (laughs) for aviation, is my shameless plug, they actually ran a very big spread on the latest... I think this is the fourth or fifth commission that they've had into Sydney airspace and Sydney airports and the second airport and all this sort of thing. And they've effectively said exactly the same thing that was said 25 years ago. And the government has now just turned around and said, well, you're not having the second airport at Badgerys Creek, which is the chief recommendation. And the second recommendation of lifting the movement cap from 80 movements an hour and uh, a movement in this consideration is either a takeoff or a landing. Yep. So you can only have 80 of both in an hour, uh, which means we're limited to, generally speaking, around 40 arrivals and 40 departures inside of an hour of an airport that is actually capable of a lot more. And they said, oh, they suggested going from 80 to 85. And uh, the good good minister has also knocked that one on the head. Yeah, well. well, And and said, absolutely no. Look where his electorate is. Look where his electorate is, yeah. Strangely enough, yes, his constituents all live under the flight path. Yeah. Conflict of interest much. Well, this is the thing that really annoys me about it is that Sydney is choking to death in its own infrastructure disaster, be it you know planes, trains or automobiles. Companies are leaving Sydney and moving to Bris Vegas up north and, uh, and Melbourne down here. And they still keep doing this stupid stuff and they still keep listening to people who, I moved in three years ago and I think it's too noisy. Well, you know. Gee, mate, it should have been here when Concord came in. But it's well, like- not to mention the airport has been there in one form or another since the 1920s. Yeah, exactly. And so- you've, got all, you've got all this going on. They desperately need a second uh, airport. They need better transport between the airports. All this kind of stuff. The airport can handle more more movements. It just needs somebody to actually you know, grow up here and say it as it is. The mode of operation at Sydney Airport that I find most entertaining is when they run sod props which is generally first thing in the morning and last thing at night, which is simultaneous opposite direction parallel runway operations. <laughs> that, that's yeah. right, yes. We're, we're, we're landing an aeroplane on one runway and on the parallel runway, we're firing off an aeroplane in the opposite direction. Yay, racetrack, figure eight. Just just to keep all the noise people happy, we try and keep everything over the bay. Of course, you know, you can make your own decisions about what you think about two transport category aeroplanes pointing at each other. Go on, it's called a game of chicken. <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what, though, we, we wouldn't be the only country on earth that's got these sort of issues. I mean, this would be uh, something that goes on, I reckon, in many cities in many countries around the world. But but uh, I tell you what, David, uh, thanks for sending in that question. And I hope that was a, that was a long way around answering it for you. And I hope it uh, certainly uh, cleared up some of those um 
questions that you had. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that uh, come into consideration when it comes to uh, all these sorts of things. I guess we're lucky here in one way in Melbourne that it's, uh, you know, it's not an overly huge airport. And the runway configuration is uh, not overly complex, really. No, it's, it's not overly complex airspace. Uh, Sydney does have a lot of things, not only the big political football to deal with, but then in addition to that, they also have Richmond Air Force Base, which is up in the hills uh, to the west of Sydney. They have uh, the two GA airports of Bankstown and Camden. And Bankstown is is pretty much right under the uh, the start of the approach for one of the runways. They've got uh, the Williamtown Air Force Base up to the north there. So it is it's quite a complex uh, little piece of sky they have to uh, deal with there whereas uh, Melbourne's quite a lot simpler. Folks if you'd like to send Ben um, more questions you can either do that via uh, you know our Facebook page or anywhere like that or Ben has his own special PCDU email address Ben which is atcben.pcdu at gmail.com or I'm also uh, on Twitter at ATC underscore Ben. And uh, Ben, we want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been, in fact, we look back through the archives here, mate, and uh, here we are at episode 85. Was uh, I think the last Controller's Corner was at episode 64. So it's been a little while, but we know you've been uh, very, very busy and uh, people should know that you know, even though Ben uh, is not always on the sh- on the show uh, in a physical sense, he uh, he quite often uh, comes around to some of the events with us and, uh, you know, is the general, uh, you know, what well, was going to say, dog's body, that's a bit uh, nasty, isn't it? Ben, but you, you end up carting all that gear around for us and, uh, you know, helping us out with all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, as I said here at this uh, Tire Bear Show, Ben uh, did most of the camera work and uh, supplied a lot to our video guy, Stephen Pam, who, even as we speak, is labouring away trying to cut it into uh, a video presentation of the Tire Bear Show. And we'll, uh, we'll certainly let everybody know when that one comes out. Well, I guess uh, we should wrap it up there, guys. It's been a great episode and a wide and varied range of topics there. Uh, great to have some ATC questions in there. And of course, uh, we had a great session of uh, interviews there from the Tire bear show we'll certainly look forward to uh, getting out there in uh, 2014 when they have the next one in the meantime uh, i've also been over at parafield recently uh, doing some interviews over there at the parafield air show so we'll have that and boy we've got natfly coming up so we're very very busy and i believe there's an air show up there at illawarra as well which we're getting a few invites to so uh, we will need some sponsorship for that so any local businesses that would like to uh, sponsor us there we'd certainly appreciate it and uh, we'll uh, do our best to get up there it uh, does take a bit of money to get out of melbourne unfortunately sometimes and uh, that's just the way it is <laughs> Not quite like shoving a kilogram up against the gravity well into low Earth orbit, but some days it feels like it. Absolutely. Well, uh, thanks very much for listening to uh, this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. As always, we certainly hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to ATC Ben. Thanks to everybody that participated in the show, sending in questions. That was great. And also, uh, thanks to the organisers of the uh, Tire Bear Show for having us down there and hosting us for the day. It was certainly a wonderful event. We'll be back soon with another episode of PCDU. But until then, while you're surfing around looking for the next air show to go to, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.planecrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website, or email us at planecrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast.
kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Grant McCarran, Grant, are you still with us? Oh, mostly, mate. <laughs> Shit, sorry. <coughs> sorry. There's an outtake. Uh, the third one for the day. Folks, if you'd like to send Ben more questions, you can either do that via uh, you know our Facebook page or anywhere like that, or Ben has his own special PCDU email address. Ben, which is? Oh, now you put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> you reckon I can remember it? I've got it written down on a piece of paper, but I don't have the piece ATC of paper. ATCBen at Gmail. Uh, it's ATCBen.PCDU, remember? As we uh, we wrap up the coverage there, and we hope you enjoyed it, folks. Uh, a couple of observations there. I think. Um, uh, actually, I'll just start that again. Yes, it certainly did. And I said, "As see, I just muted out there while I coughed myself." Oh, up. sorry. <laughs> <laughs>